Bolt your windows. Lock your doors. Check your closets. Look under your bed. And then, prepare yourself. For it's another episode of Dark Night of the Podcast. Whoa! see a swath of sinners sitting yonder and they're acting like a pack of fools gazing into space they let their minds all wander instead of studying the good lord's rules well you better pay attention build your comprehension there's gonna be a quiz at your ascension not to mention any threat of hell but if you're smart you'll learn your lessons well troy do you know that song i do not but Troy, uh, Roger, you are spoiling the listeners every week. Every you're just giving yourself more work because every week they're going to expect you to have a brand new. <laughs> I've got them. I'm like seriously trying to find songs that line up with every movie we have selected for the next two months. I'm like, God, what can I perform this week? But this week it's relevant, Troy. It's relevant, and I'm going to tell you why. That song is "Learn Your Lessons Well." from the musical Godspell. Godspell, written in by Stephen Schwartz. Famous, famous I thought, musical writer. I thought you were going to say written by Gilmer McCormick. <laughs> <laughs> no, but no, Troy, but that's the thing. It was performed by Gilmer McCormick. <laughs> okay, I knew. It's, <laughs> I knew there was a tie into Gilmer McCormick somehow. Okay. It's, Got it. it's six de- Today's episode is Six Degrees of Gilmer McCormick <laughs> with Roger and Troy. <laughs> and <laughs> it's Gilmer McCormick week at Dark Night of the Podcast. And if you know me, I've, I have a soft spot for Gilmer McCormick. I love the musical Godspell. I have soft spots for all Christian-based musicals, Jesus Christ Superstar, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, Children of Eden, but most of all, I love Godspell. And I've been in it three times, and the last time I did it, I performed that song, originally performed by Gilmer fucking McCormick. Not only that, in the script for the musical, Gilmer originated the role, and all of the characters take on the names of the actors. So in the script, the character is prominently named Gilmer. And who else the fuck has the name Gilmer other than Gilmer McCormick? So she will forever go down in history as being the Gilmer in Godspell. Well, we should probably at least give the <laughs> listeners, if they don't know who the hell Gilmer McCormick is, we should probably How let them How do you not know Gilmer McCormick? <laughs> She is Sister Margaret. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Sister Margaret in Dun Dun Dun. Say it, Troy. Silent Night, Deadly Night. Oh, you fuckers knew it was coming, but not quite like that. Gosh, no. <laughs> Uh, we're gonna win a Grammy. I just I know <laughs> oh it's coming. We're gonna win something. We might lose some listeners, but we're gonna win a Grammy. Um, but yeah, it's Silent Night, Deadly Night, a movie yeah. that Troy and I fucking love. Oh my god! You know, yeah, you knew this was coming. You knew it was coming um, because it's Christmas week. Ho ho ho! Merry Christmas in a few days, and and this will be released right before Christmas time to you know help you ring in. Baby Jesus's birthday. What what better what better way than to listen to us? What better way than bloodshed and murder? Bloodshed and murder. But yes, 
it took it took us a year, over a year, to finally get to this title. But good God, this is I'm gonna I'm gonna be honest with you, Roger. This right here is one of the movies that made me want to start this podcast. Oh my God, Trey, this is not only one of my top favorite holiday themed horror flicks. It's honestly one of my favorite slashers in general holiday or not just regardless i i love this movie the story and the reasoning behind it i think are extremely well thought out and very well crafted and i love how honestly how taboo this film was when it came out um upon its original release i mean it has such a rich story behind it yeah i i i agree with everything you say i think it is actually one of my favorite slasher films um, of all time, not just Christmas themed, but uh, slasher period. It would be my number two favorite Christmas themed horror film right behind the masterpiece that is Black Christmas. And you know what? Every time I watch this film, I, I think I like it more and more because it is really doing something that other 80s slasher flicks were not really attempting to do. And that was to build a a, a prominent backstory with the antagonist slash protagonist and really make the audience sympathize with him and and the whole film i feel uh, even more so in being being like scary or 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 disturbing is just sad it's very sad and the intriguing thing about the structure of this film is it very much i think intentionally steers away from what at this point had become the formulaic go-to for slashers having the token female lead, you know, final girl trope, um, and, you know, having characters getting picked off one by one, oftentimes by a masked or hidden mysterious killer figure of some sort. This kind of bends all of the rules. It lets you know right off the bat who the killer is. Uh, It doesn't try to hide it. And instead it opts to delve into their story. It doesn't really give you a, a focal hero or heroine in the sense of you know, the the protagonist. Because, yeah, you're right. He really does kind of balance as the protagonist. His storyline is sympathetic. But it really doesn't give someone opposite him to really represent, like, the force of good other than Gilmer fucking McCormick, his sister Margaret. But she's, like, a secondary character. This really is Billy's story. And because of that, because of the way they chose to handle this material, you end up feeling... A lot of things that you don't normally feel over the course of a horror movie, especially for this villain, for this killer. You feel sympathy. You feel sadness. You feel that he's been done wrong. And it leaves you with a very unique and interesting takeaway at the end of the, uh, the at the end of the piece of cinema. And we are going to get to all of that. Uh, we'll, we'll get we will get right into our review here. But we do want to say you know, we want to remind you, you lovely folks, that we do have a, a Patreon, patreon.com slash Dark Knight of the Podcast. The link will be in the show notes where we actually just covered Silent Night, Deadly Night Part 2. So if you're dying to hear our thoughts on Silent Night, Deadly Night Part 2, along with several other films we've already covered, such as Return to Oz, Repo the Genetic Opera, Terrifier, uh, check out our Patreon. We we have some great bonus uh, content for you if you enjoy what we're doing. Check it out. Subscribe. Or if you don't want to do that, 
head on over to Apple Podcasts. Remember, five stars. It really does help, guys, because somehow with Apple Podcasts, the more ratings a specific type of podcast has, uh, the the better chance it has of showing up in like searches. Like if somebody were to search horror movie podcast, it goes by pretty much how many five star ratings a podcast has in terms of what ones show up first. So that'll help us. That's all we're gonna say. Um, to give us a little Christmas love either through Patreon or our Apple Podcast reviews. Yeah, we've definitely gotten a few uh, recent acknowledgments, a few really pleasant, lovely write ups. Uh, it's nice to see our star rating over twenty listeners now now we have our 21st individual uh left us a five-star review recently and that felt really good what a great way to end the new year um i also want to acknowledge recently i I love knowing that other podcasts and other channels uh there's other listeners out there who have their own material who are listening to us and promoting us and i just want to take a quick second to acknowledge uh the youtube channel garbage pail queens uh one of the co-hosts morgan ziva has been a fan, has been listening to us and supporting us. And they recently gave us a great shout out. Um, And they cover a lot of horror-based material and so forth. And she and uh, her co-host Queenie, in their segment, uh, Queenie and Morgan Shoot the Breeze, they brought up our podcast. They gave us some love. Yeah, so it's really nice to hear that we're getting some support from other services, streaming services, podcasters, YouTube, what have you. I love uh, seeing the support, and I wanted to give that mutually to them because I think these gals are great. So, yeah, yeah, it's really nice. Thank, Merry Christmas to those thank girls. Thank you. Thank you, ladies. Merry Christmas, and thank you for listening. We, we, we love it. We love hearing your feedback. Speaking of, if I'm going to give a shout out since you just did, and then we will we will get to the review. I promise, guys. You know, one of my other passions in, in, is true crime. Yes, right? true crime. Uh, I love true crime. That's basically if I'm not listening to horror movie podcast or watching horror movie podcasts, then or I'm watching a horror movie, or watching horror movies. I'm listening to true crime podcast. I had the opportunity last week to be a guest on a pop, pop culture Persephone's podcast where me and her spent two hours discussing the Jean Bernay Ramsey case. So if you uh, have an interest in true crime, you want to check that out, hit her up. She was actually a guest on our podcast ooh, many moons ago uh, when we discussed uh, Tamara. Yes. So, oh, oh my God, Roger, do you realize we are forgetting something that's pretty huge? What, that you solved the JonBenet Ramsey case? <laughs> that we solved the JonBenet Ramsey case. No. No, I just looked at the thing. This is our 50th episode. Oh, <laughs> I got so caught up with Gilbert McCormick. <laughs> I know. Okay. I had a whole it's our 50th. Oh, we're 50 years old, everybody. We can stretch and we can kick. We're 50. Yeah, I said I was so busy thinking about how do I celebrate the iconic Gilmer McCormick that I fucking forgot that we're fifty. Oh my god! Well, happy fiftieth, Troy. Fifty. We've done this fifty. Well, more than fifty times, but we've put out fifty. Who fifty of these episodes? So all we can say, folks, is here's to 50 more. Keep listening. Keep giving us the the positive feedback, and we will be at 100 before you know. Troy and I are going to be celebrating in Vegas pretty soon, dancing on the ceiling, fucking getting down because of our 50. Yeah. Coming at you with 100 pretty soon. God, yeah. It'll be 100 by the end of the year, I bet, right? Fuck yeah. Well, because we're finally moving full full speed ahead. Here we go. Look at us. We have some great, uh, great titles lined up. 
But yeah, now we <laughs> guys. Are... I literally have a f- more than a full year's list of titles, and it's just a matter of p- picking one every week. So do I, yeah. But we're no longer twinks anymore, Roger. I know, I know. Now we're daddies, and don't it feel good, Troy? Yeah, daddies. You want to talk about? Some... <laughs> and it hurts. You want to talk about some daddies? Let's get right into Silent Night, Deadly Night. <laughs> Oh, right. Well, I mean, Daddy, yes. I mean, he's supposed to be 18, but <laughs> this fucker ain't 18, but I'm okay with it because goddamn. One thing to acknowledge about Silent Night, Deadly Night is it does have, in fact, what I believe to be the hottest killer of all horror films ever made. And I think most gays probably agree, but goddamn is Billy hot. Oh, Billy, Billy, yes, my... Oh, I'm sure he made a lot of little 80s gay boys' hearts pitter-patter when they... First saw him revealed with that uh, erotic scan up of his muscular tight body to reveal his smiling cherubic face. Mm. Or how about the pan along his nude body to reveal his <sighs> fuzzy butt cheeks, which you never get a good fuzzy butt cheek in a movie. Oh, and I love him. I love yeah, him. <laughs> too bad that fucking broad was in bed with him. I know. Thank God she got her fucking comeuppance. <laughs> But we we are discussing the 1984 highly controversial at the time. Yes. And, and now iconic film Silent Night Deadly Night directed by what is it Charles Cellier? Is that how you say his name? Cellier? Cellier? Oh, well, I don't Charles, you did a great job directing. I have directing no this, fucking idea. I don't know if I'm getting your name wrong. I'm sorry. We will discuss all the controversy surrounding this film, and we're going to get right into it. Uh, the film opens up with a very—I want to say—it's kind of unsettling. The little, the little children's voices singing, "Santa's watching, Santa's creeping." Blah, 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 as the wreath comes into play, or comes like smashing onto the screen that says "Silent Night, Deadly Night." With all the blood splatter and... That animated, like, pool of blood that hits the camera. It's The opening credits are already significantly creepier than anything we see in the second film. <laughs> and it's just, it's just like, piano music and voices and, like, black titles with white font against them. And that's all it is. And it's already scarier than anything in the sequel. I do, but I do like the piano score throughout this film. I think the piano score in this film is very haunting. Oh, Yeah. Yeah, the the score uh, the score th- in this throughout this film I think is is highly effective. Uh, once we get past the opening credits, we do get the text to screen that says we are on Christmas Eve, nineteen seventy one, following a car driving through the beautiful Utah mountains because this film takes place in Utah. It's stunning these mountains. I mean, this location in general is beautiful to look at i wish there was almost more of it because it just is so scenic yeah i i I, we're we'll talk about that but yes this film definitely captures the christmas spirit everything very perfectly but one of the things that definitely helps helps with that is the the landscape of this film it's snow covered it looks cold even though Stark. yeah even though like the radio announcer at the beginning is like oh it's gonna be a chilly 20 degrees out but the we, the people in the car are not wearing any winter attire at all. But we get introduced to mom, dad, little Billy, and baby Ricky. Okay, Troy, now that you've had a chance to revisit this footage, tell me that baby Ricky is not, in fact, the single ugliest baby you've ever <laughs> seen in your life. 
Well, uh, yeah, they're not the poor thing. Just drooling and dead eyed. Drooling, he has like, yeah, I bless his heart. Bless his heart. He grew up to be a, a good-looking boy, though. But <laughs> in one one of the in uh, incarnations of him, because <laughs> there are like four different actors over the course of the sequel that play one person. One variation of him is yes, somewhat attractive. But um, young Billy, gotta say, I'm not normally a fan of children in films in general. They annoy me. I don't like kids. But both of the young actors that portray Billy, I'm just going to say both of them now because there are two different actors that play him before you see him at 18, I think do a really good job on camera. Yeah, they're not bad. I like the I like the little the younger little Billy's very doe-eyed, wide-eyed, uh, innocent. You know, he they're they're driving to see Grandpa for Christmas Eve. Uh, and little Billy is just concerned about Santa coming. He's asking his mom about Santa Claus and if he can stay up. And she's like, no, you got to go to bed. It's naughty to stay up. And he, all he's concerned about is he just wants to get home in time so that he can get in bed so that he won't disappoint Santa Claus, which is a very just innocent childlike thing to worry about, you know? Yeah, and <laughs> I love the twist here, uh, how he goes complete 180 on the subject matter when they do finally encounter Grandpa. Because you find out that Grandpa is staying at um, the Utah Mental Facility. Straightforward. They just tell you what it is. Uh, it sounds very fucking foreboding, especially in the mountains of Utah. But uh, And gra- Grandfather is certainly not doing very well, or so it seems. Uh, it does turn out that Apparently, this grandpa is putting on an act to seem as though he's had, I don't know, a stroke or something. And that, I mean, that would be quite a challenge for me. There's no way I could pretend to be mute and, <laughs> like, completely, like, inaudible, blank faced for that long of a period of time. It seems like he's been there for quite a long time. But as soon as the parents leave, he has a pretty meaty dialogue segment with Billy where he basically instills the fear of Santa within him. Uh, by basically telling him that Santa's going to come and fuck him up if he does anything wrong. <laughs> yeah, this old this old fucker. Jeez, talk about some creepy old man. Oh my world. god, his da- his blank face. Well, he is just yeah, his blank face when the parents are there. But the second the parents leave, he comes alive and, and is like talking to Billy about Santa, and he's all like his voice is all raspy and he's spitting as he's talking because he's so passionate about it. And Santa's going to punish you. If you see Santa tonight, boy, you better run for your life. He's just so like into scaring the shit out of this little boy. And he's taking such joy out of it too. Oh, he is. He's like laughing about it. And, and the second the parents walk back in with the doctor, he goes completely blank again. I do want to acknowledge really quick because I'm not. We're not going to touch on this too much because it is pretty different the material. Um, but I, I have watched the 2012 remake several times within the last, I'd say, two years, and it's been a hot minute since I've revisited the original, and I was very much forgetting that though they're two completely different films, the remake does take several themes and elements and moments from the original film and kind of rehashes them in a a good way. I use that in a positive way um, for its own sake. 
Um, and this whole thing right here with the grandpa, there is like a similar kind of storyline uh, with the one character's grandfather kind of running through the remake as well. And I forgot how that really like kind of tied into this little little bit here. Uh, it made me appreciate the remake that much more because there's several little things about the remake that um, you can see are directly taken. Even it being like a police procedural kind of vibe that it has. Um, the, the police element in this film does become very prominent. They basically just, like, flipped the focus from Billy to the police officers in the remake. It becomes more of a police-based film, but I appreciate it for that. But, um, I just forgot how similar it was in tone with this moment. Yeah, yeah. And speaking of a remake, they are apparently doing a, a, another remake that was just announced recently. So I'll be curious to see how that turns out. Is it going to be a, like a brand new remake or is it going to be like a yeah, sequel? Yeah, it's a brand new remake. It's actually called Silent Night, Deadly Night. It'll be a, yeah, it's a, it's a remake. Hmm. I don't know if I necessarily feel the need to have that, but I'll watch it nonetheless. I thought the 2012 was pretty, a pretty quality remake, all things considered. I'll be honest. I did too. I did too. But they try, I think they, they a little bit at least try to distance themselves from the original film, at least in title. Um, because they just went with Silent Night, which is such a generic title. I mean, there was just a film, what, this month released called Silent Night. So I'm glad that this one is going with the, you know, the original title and kind of they, they say they're going to st- stick with the same like tone and feel of the 1984 version. So we shall see, you know what they say that every time there's a remake. So sometimes it's hit, sometimes it's missed. So we shall see. Anyways, so after after this creepy ass fucking grandpa, good god, this grandpa scares the shit out of little Billy. We cut back to the family in the car driving home now. Now, I'm I'm sorry. This seemed, this seemed like a very long drive, right? <laughs> and they're only there They for were like... only there for like 3 minutes. <laughs> <Yeah>. That <laughs> I, No. I would have just made a phone call, said, "Hey, hold the phone up to my dad's ear. I'm going to say hi to him." Uh, before the days of FaceTime, <laughs> because they literally they leave the when they leave the mental facility, it's still it's still light out. But then all of a sudden it, it changes to pitch black. They've been driving for hours through like isolated wooded roads of Utah. Billy all of a sudden asks mom if Santa if, if she's ever been naughty. And mom's like the mom's like, oh, a few times. And he's like, did Santa punish you? And she's like, where would you hear such a thing? And he's like, grandpa told me. Uh, and I do like that the parents actually believe him for the most part. They're like, why would he lie? You know, maybe we should call the, the hospital back and, and, and talk to the doctor about this. And I do like that the mother's like, grandpa's just an old fool. And Billy's like, you shouldn't say mean things about old people. That's naughty. Santa's going to punish you. Yeah, I have to say that I think that for the most part, this film in general does a good job of Setting up scenarios where I don't have to stretch, like, <laughs> my acceptance of reality within the cinematic universe, um, it doesn't make it too far-fetched. Like, you're right, I have the exact same note. The parents, I like that they don't basically shut down what this kid is saying. Like, they listen to him, they hear him out. And consistently throughout the whole movie, for the most part, a lot of the decisions people make seem very authentic and not too far out or unrealistic. So I think this film's tone overall is one of the reasons I really appreciate it. The characters seem to just operate like very much like 
normal, everyday people. Although, aside from a few random sex scenes in random places, people are fucking everywhere in this movie. <laughs> fucking orphanages and in the back rooms of buildings. So, I mean, that that aside, though, I really think that people, for the most part, operate pretty believably. Yeah, it's not your typical... They're not your typical parents that are, like, shutting the kid down and calling him a little, you know, a little liar or a little brat. Or They actually kind of believe him. It cuts to... Uh, a Santa Claus going into the gas station. And this is the scene that we just talked about in our Patreon episode for part two that they use as the movie that uh, Ricky and his girlfriend go to watch. It's this particular scene where this Santa Claus goes into a gas station, basically holds the gas station up and shoots the attendant, shoots him like three times, shoots him in the stomach. The guy falls and shoots him in the stomach again. And then the fucking right in the forehead. And that forehead, that forehead shot is pretty brutal. Like, you see the blood pool up and start leaking out of his head. Yeah, and it's all for $31. The Santa walks out and it's like, $31, ho, ho, ho. Of course, now we cut back to the parents driving on this dark road. Uh, they, see this, they see Santa Claus. They see something in the middle of the road. And as they approach it, they realize it's a man dressed as Santa Claus. Billy immediately starts freaking out because of what Grandpa told him. Billy is screaming, don't stop, don't stop. What do the fucking stupid-ass parents do? They stop. I would have driven right by. For so many reasons. (laughs) I don't care if it was somebody dressed as Santa Claus. I've seen Silent Night, Deadly Night. I'm not stopping. Uh, But even outside of that, you have two kids in your car. It's a deserted road. Just keep driving. Just keep. Where are you going to put this man? There's no room for him. (laughs) Well, they stop. Santa walks up to the glass or to the window, the driver's window, and Billy's screaming. And the dad asks, "Can I help you? What what, what do you need?" And the Santa's like, "Oh, I just had ran into a little trouble." He pulls out a fucking gun. They throw the car into reverse, but the Santa Claus shoots the car, shoots through the the windshield, shoots the dad. The car goes off the road. The baby's screaming its fucking hat off. Billy, for being a little fucking 45-year-old kid, is pretty smart. He gets out of the car and runs into the woods. In the meantime, the Santa Claus comes, grabs the mother out of the car, throws her in the middle of the road, and attempts to rape her, like rips her blouse open so her boobs, bare boobs are flopping out. Um... And she actually slaps him and he punches her back. And then he's like, you don't hit me, bitch. And takes out a uh, fucking pocket knife and slits her throat. All while poor little Billy is watching from the side of the road in the woods. Man, I gotta say, I mean, as brutal and intense as it is, I, I love this for an opening sequence. Um... They took some time to really establish the family. Um, so you get a good idea of like this family structure of this unit and, and you know just who Billy is, how his life was before everything went awry. Uh, and, and, and with this event that transpires, they really set up a phenomenal reason for Billy to have a preset fear of Santa Claus. Um, and so when this murder transpires, it definitely has good reason for it to have all the more effect on him because he's already got like the you know the fear has already been initiated by the grandfather to start fearing santa so when this happens when santa actually does prove himself to be a villain a negative force it just i mean it 
imagine the trauma that this kid must experience. I mean, first of all, seeing your family killed in general is traumatic, but he's already scared of Santa, and then it comes true. Like, there are so many layers to that. Um, and yeah, you're right. Like, seeing the kid run from the car, like, there's this, like, really, like, raw, gritty feel to the way the scene is executed because you just see the kid get out of the car and just run right into the woods and he's watching through like these like branches in the snow as his he watches his dad's body like limply flop on the ground and later in the movie they keep coming back to this footage of like of the dad and of, of the mom as well being murdered and they keep showing like different angles of it uh, that you don't see in this original opening scene. You you keep seeing these like nice push-ins on the dad's dead body and everything. And it's they do a really good job of showing just how much of an effect this moment had on this kid, and it carries with him with him through his whole life. It's such a phenomenally set up sequence, and it just makes sense why he snaps, why he inevitably snaps, because this whole moment is so severe. It's brutal. It's uncomfortable to watch because this does seem like your all-American family, you know, that are that were just going out on Christmas Eve to visit a, a, a sick relative, and, and to have this horror like befall on them in in such a you know out of nowhere way. It's like they were just in the wrong place at the wrong time in this fucking Santa Claus. I want to know whatever did this fucking guy get caught? I hope. Uh, because talk about a ruthless killer. We can we can sit there and talk about Billy, you know, being a ruthless killer all we want. But what about this fucker shooting a shooting a gas yeah. station attendant in the head on Christmas Eve for thirty dollars, and then fucking offing a whole family in front of the kids? Well, I want to know what happened. I need this is what they should have addressed in the sequel. What happened to this fucking bastard? Yeah, I was gonna say my one note I have about I don't want to say a letdown, but I would have really loved to have been at least seen some form of closure with what transpired, you know, in the moments immediately following. Because you never get, you know, you get mentioned throughout the film that Billy's parents were killed, but you never hear like anything about, oh, well, you know, the killer is, it was caught or, you know, uh, I don't know. I guess, I guess we assume maybe he wasn't because Billy's fear is that Santa Claus is, you know, is, is going to come back for him. He still has a, a very heavy you know, a uh, fear of Santa, the a Santa Claus figure throughout the film. I don't know. Just something I was thinking about is like, what the, I wonder what happened to this guy. Did yeah. he get caught or what? Well, also just in the sense of how the story kind of unfolds, I also just want to know why he didn't pursue Billy into the woods. Like he's standing there screaming for Billy, like, where are you, you little fucker? You know, like I, I would assume that he would pursue him. Also the baby, like not saying I want to see a baby get killed. Absolutely fucking not. But like, to me, this guy is the kind of fucker who has no limits as to what he will do to ensure that he does not get caught. And Billy and his baby brother, Ricky, I think are both pretty disposable to him. I want to know why they survived and made it to the next phase of the film. Well, if it, probably because that guy just wanted to get away from the fucking baby screaming. It adds to the unsettling atmosphere or tone of this scene because the baby is screaming the entire time just screaming at the top of its lungs oh yeah and they cut back to it and you see him like tears rolling down his cheeks and everything it's it's raw it's it's brutal and then as the scene fades out they play that song a sweet little baby sweet little baby oh yeah it's got like a gospel tinge to it yeah yeah it's really it's really unsettling um really unsettling 
And we cut to St. Mary's Orphanage in 1974. Yay! This isolated looking place is also really creepy looking. I mean, any child that grows up in this fucking miserable orphanage is going to come out a homicidal maniac, I assure you. So I don't really think that it was just Billy's preset that caused him to want to kill people. I would want to just kill people having to grow up under this fucking cunt whore that is Mother Superior. Oh, we're going to talk about Mother Superior. We get introduced now to older Billy, who is in class, and the teacher's having the students hang up their Christmas drawings. And right away, Billy goes to hang up his drawing, and before he even gets it hung up, this little bitch in the front row is like, Oh, sister! Freaks out, and the sister sees the picture, and she's like, You go to Mother Superior right now! And so Billy goes to Mother Superior, and it's a picture basically of like just Santa Claus with like a couple of dead people in front of him that he stabbed and like the reindeer has its head cut off. I love that when the nun calls for Billy to like come up and present his drawing, he's like fucking excited. He's like, oh, okay. You can see he's like proud. And he starts like lifting it up, getting ready to take it up. Uh, I, I'm, <laughs> I'm almost, I'm baffled how he doesn't understand that the visual of, of what he drew is problematic. It seems like as though it doesn't even make sense to him. I guess because of these irrational fears that have been implanted in him after seeing a Santa Claus slaughter his entire family. But um, yeah, it doesn't even seem like it clicks or makes sense to him. No, it doesn't. And this is when we get introduced to Mother Superior and Sister Margaret. Gilmer fucking McCormick. Iconic. McCormick and Mother Superior. Mother Superior played by Lillianne Chauvin, 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 who is a French actress. Very prominent. I did not realize how much stuff she had been in, but she's been in a lot of stuff. But she's Mother Superior. gives a gives an amazing performance because you hate her, and then Sister Margaret's the more sympathetic one. Sister or Mother Superior tells Billy to go to his room, and she has to stay. He has to, and to stay there until she tells him to come out. And this is when we get really uh, the understanding that, that Miss Mother Superior doesn't w- want to hear anybody's shit. She thinks she's right. You're not going to tell her any different because Sister Margaret's being very rational and telling her, hey, look at this photo. This this drawing shows that he still has all of this these memories inside of him and that he need and he needs help. And Mother Superior is like, no, he does not need help. I I'll, I'll he needs punishment. And she's just like she's just a bitch. She like shuts Sister Margaret down right away. Yeah, she even says to Sister Margaret, she flat out says, I don't care about hearing what you what you think on this i don't care like and they do such a good job here of i mean first of all both women are pretty fantastically cast in these roles because you have mother superior who is such a cold and miserable seeming woman (laughs) and also in her physical appearance she's just like haggard and miserable and uptight and just like I mean, every inch of her is just pure bitch. And then Sister Margaret has, like, this very warm, concerned, first of all, energy, but also just her physicality, her body language, her face. She exudes everything you would expect a nun to, you know, every aspect of what you would expect them to possess. The caring, the nurturing, the the worry for Billy's well-being 
they're truly polar opposites. And Sister Margaret represents this like reason and rationale that everybody throughout the entire course of the film should be listening to. But they don't. They, they, are, they are terrified. You can even tell Sister Margaret's terrified of Mother Superior. So they do basically whatever she, whatever she says. Um, after this little exchange, Billy is up in his room watching the kids play outside. Sister Margaret does go into his room and, and tells him, you know, you should go outside and play with the other kids. And he's like, oh, no, I can't. Mother Superior would be mad. And she's like, you know, Mother Superior only wants the best for you. And what's, what I think is best is that you go outside and play with the other kids. So he agrees. Uh, and so he puts on his coat. And as he's going outside through the hallway, we hear like moaning, moans of pleasure, apparently. Although it's the some of the most awkward moaning I've heard. He goes to the end of the hallway and, and peeks in the keyhole to this room and we have these two random male and female characters basically fucking inside the room who are these people i don't know but they look like they're about 35 is one of them maybe a nun (sighs) is the broad a nun or are they maybe orphans (laughs) i'm very confused 30 year old orphans (laughs) well i mean yes okay so Obviously, they're too old to be orphans. I'm assuming maybe one's a priest and one's a nun, and they're having carnal, lustful, secluded affairs where they think nobody can see them. But of course, lo and behold, Billy can see them, and he spies on them. And just as he starts to kind of have flashes of remembering his mother's blouse busting open to reveal her (laughs) breasts, uh, in lieu of, you know, he's seeing this chick's tits jiggling and bouncing, getting all groped up, and he gets his flashback of his mother's breast, which is a very awkward <laughs> moment. Mother Superior comes busting in there, tosses the kid aside, busts the door open. This couple looks up like, oh shit, and she proceeds to fucking take out a belt and punish them, which means beating these two grown adults, which I'm sorry... I don't know who these people are or what they're doing in this location, but I'm pretty sure that this broad has no right to be beating people with belts. Maybe she could kick them out of the location or verbally scold them, even call the police. I don't know if they don't belong there, but to just beat these people, like she just starts beating them. And I mean, she's beating on them. Like, couldn't they sue her or something? (laughs) She's committing a she's committing assault because these these people are older than eighteen. I'm sorry, yeah. Who knows who they are? I, I, your guess is as good as mine. But she literally is beating them. She's like, "You devils! You filthy devils!" I've never. I, I say this oftentimes when we watch movies and there are characters I dislike. I've made this statement before, but I'm going to stand by it this time. I have never wanted a bitch to die more so than Mother Superior because she's a fucking cunt. As evidenced by the next scene, because Billy goes outside and he's just having a good old time. He's playing. Who comes outside? Mother Superior. Billy, get over here. And she asks him, did you did you see what those two were doing? And he's like, no. And she's like, well, what they were doing is very naughty. And when you're when you're naughty, you need to be punished. Punishment is good. Punishment is absolute. And Billy, you were naughty for leaving your room. 
Which wasn't his fault. Sister Margaret told him he could go. Well, and she even started to say to Mother Superior, she's like, I gave him permission. And she's like, shut the fuck up, Margaret. (laughs) (laughs) Poor Sister Margaret gets put in her place so many times over the course of this movie. Um, And all she's trying to do is help, that poor woman. But yeah, like, I'm just, I don't really understand what Billy did wrong here. Even in spying, I don't think he even, he didn't know what he was looking at until, like, he realized what was going on. It's not like he was trying to be, like, a little shit. He just heard noises and I think went to investigate. So he ends up getting beat the fuck down by Sister Margaret and her goddamn belt. And it's, like, really not deserved. Mother Superior and her belt. Oh, my, dare I say that, Sister Margaret. I know. You are are slandering Gilmer McCormick. Oh, my God. And her purity. So pure. But, no, Mother Superior ends up beating him the fuck down with the belt. And um, he takes it like a little bitch, the poor kid. But, you know, this, this, this stuff happened, though. I mean, we look at it now, and yes, this is child abuse, but you, you're trying to tell me that this shit really didn't happen. Talk to anybody that went to a Catholic school or, you know, I can't imagine some of the shit that went on in these types of orphanages in the 60s, 70s, 50s before it before it was like a thing that child abuse is kind of bad. You know, we probably shouldn't beat kids with belts on a regular basis, but... I mean, so that just adds sort of to the to the realistic feeling of this film, because knowing that this shit did happen, this poor kid, I mean, he never stood a chance. Yeah, up to this point, it really does not feel that far fetched. No, it's not far fetched. Uh, she makes him go to bed and in the middle of the night, he has a, he's having a nightmare freaking out and it's flat it's a nightmare obviously about his parents getting murdered he gets out of bed and runs to the hall and of course who catches him fucking mother superior she takes him back in the bedroom and fucking ties him to the bed again child abuse this is child yes, abuse. and he is he's screaming please let me and, and sister margaret is there and she wants so bad you can tell to help him because he starts crying for Sister Margaret. And you can just see on her face, like she is literally dying inside because she wants to do something, but she knows she can't. So she has no choice but to leave him in there all night. This is the moment when he starts having the nightmares. This is one of the points where they really start prominently using the flashbacks of, of exactly what happened uh, with the parents. You know, we've seen it. A few times up, up to now, but you really get some clear shots of exactly what it was that Billy saw. And you get, first of all, you get a shot, a clear shot of the mother's throat getting slit during one of these. Because uh, you saw it from a distance during the initial sequence. But you actually do see the throat cut during a flashback. Um, you also get some shots of like the, the blade being wielded with blood on it. You're just really seeing just how deeply this is embedded in... Billy's psyche. Um, And you also have that really, really eerie shot. I want to bring it up again. This very creepy, slow push in on the father's dead body laying on the on the, the road. And his eyes are just basically looking right into the camera. And they just spend some time lingering on this. And when you think of what this kid saw, what he experienced, like, these flashbacks really hit home. It really makes sense why this kid is not stable. Yes. And it just keeps getting worse and worse for him. So, like I said, it's you're. I almost feel like this film dives more into like kind of a psychological. It's kind of a, a psychological. What, what's the word I'm looking for? Theme 
I guess, which I know that's not the right word. My mind is blanking more than like a slasher film. You're really watching kind of a, a study in psychology and how trauma as a child can really manifest into something pretty awful if it's not addressed correctly, which is not in this film at all. And they they dwell on that a lot too, Troy, just to validate what you're saying. Like, Sister Margaret's character is very much there to be the voice of reason and say, you need to properly let this kid explore what he's feeling and you need to really make sure that, you know, you're holding his hand through this. You're caring for him. You're addressing this. Not punishing him for, you know, having these manifestations of fear, of trauma, you know, of guilt, of all these things he feels with the loss of his parents, of uh, the punishments are just really exacerbating it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. As evident by this next scene where it's Christmas morning now and all the kids are opening their presents. And uh, this is when Mother Superior is talking to Sister Margaret and tells her because Billy comes downstairs and she gives him his present, tells him to go open his present. And Mother Superior says to Sister Margaret, you will see how well my my methods have worked today because Billy is going to sit on Santa Claus's lap and he's going to behave. Oh, bitch is confident as all hell. She's like just sitting there like on her high fucking horse like, you'll see. It's all going to go to plan. She also has a line just to really like hit home what a bitch she is. Where the children are, you know, orphans experiencing joy, receiving gifts. And she's fucking penguin waddling all around. And she says, I see nothing but greed where there should be gratitude. (laughs) I see nothing but greed where there should be gratitude. Like, what a bitch thing to say to children on Christmas. Fuck you, Mother Superior. Especially orphans. They have nothing. (laughs) Yeah, this is probably their one joy. They're living in this fucking creepy, isolated house or building in the middle of nowhere. And, oh, good God, they get a pencil case. I guess, God forbid, they they show some sort of happiness. Because I'm sorry, none of the presents these kids were getting seemed like anything I'd be all terribly excited about. I mean, a kid got a, a one of the kid got a, a plastic ball that he's throwing around that looks like I mean, none of these kids are. It's not like they're getting fucking Ataris and uh, bicycles. And, oh, it's like they went into the dollar store and, and raided the toy section. Oh, come on, Mother Superior. Get with the program. Mother Superior sucks. <laughs> so they for, she literally drags Billy kicking and screaming through the orphanage to put him on Santa Claus's lap. She does not understand how to read body language whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> no. Well, he punches the Santa Claus, knocks the fucking Santa Claus off the chair, runs to his room as the Santa Claus is laying on the ground with the bloody nose. What What the hell's wrong with that kid? And poor Billy knows he just fucked up, right? Because he's cowered in his corner hugging his knees. He knows he fucked up. He's like, please don't punish me. I'm sorry. Please don't punish me. And all of a sudden you hear that crankety old bitch of a voice say, William. And it freezes on him looking in terror at the door. Two things. First of all, seeing that Santa get knocked the fuck out is a standout moment. Like that kid, like that child must have been a boxer because he fucking just right hooks that Santa and he is down. And it's like, holy fuck, that kid just fucked that old man up. So that's impressive. But I have to say, 
There are plenty of films that we have seen and that we have either discussed or not discussed, just within the horror genre. Plenty of films that take a period of time to delve into, like, a child's backstory or a character's backstory and basically analyze why they, who, why they, who they are, why they become who they are later in the film, you know, as a killer and why they evolve that way. And, um, like for example, the, the Rob Zombie's Halloween, you know, is, is one that I'm going to throw out there. This is a film that in my mind handles that task flawlessly. You get a great setup piece, and then you spend a little bit of time at the orphanage with him as a child, but it's not, like, overbearing. You have just enough moments with these characters where you can kind of see the darkness manifesting inside of him, but they don't force it on you. They don't, like, overwhelm you with it. They give you just enough material to really understand just how severe things are getting, and then they bring you to, you know what is supposed to be the present day, at least within the film. And I think this movie does just such a great job of really just setting the the viewer up for what to expect. Yeah, I agree. They They really spent time painting Billy so far throughout the film, sort of as the protagonist, right? It's, it's the character we have followed pretty much so far through the film. We were with him when his parents got killed. We were with him with his experience in the orphanage. We're seeing everything from his perspective. And we've grown to, or at least would hope, if you have any semblance of like feeling, sympathy, apathy for, for humans, you're going to really attach yourself to, to what this kid is going through and feel sorry for him, right? And this film, like you said, does it very well. It's not heavy-handed uh, like some of the other films we have. And again, this was... 20 over 20 years before Rob Zombie's Halloween, right? Because when we talk about a film that really tries to give a character like a backstory to justify what they do in the film, you know, I think a lot of people automatically go to Rob Zombie's Halloween remake because he really took that Michael Myers character and gave a very elaborate 40 minute backstory on what made Michael Myers who he is. Now, many people will say that's what ruined the movie for them because what made the original Halloween so scary is that you did not know what Michael Myers' motivation was. That's an argument for a different day, but I feel like that one, like you just said, Rob Zombie's version of of showing trauma leading to something terrible was very heavy-handed, very just, it wasn't handled in a, what's the word I'm looking for? It wasn't handled in like a, sympathetic way. Does that make sense? Like he surround, I mean, he surrounded not only Michael Myers, who young Michael Myers is not a likable character to begin with. That kid was awful. Like why would anybody want to sympathize with this kid? Anyway, he's a fucking brat, but then you surround him, surround that kid with even more awful people. And there's nobody to even really root for. In this case, you do have, you have Billy, you have Sister Margaret, really the only antagonist you have so far is Mother Superior. But even Mother Superior is doing something that in her mind, right, is right. Like she is justifying what she is doing to these children, particularly Billy, because she, I believe, truly thinks it's going to help him. So 
it's a lot easier to buy it. It's handled just way more carefully in this film than it is in, 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 in any other film. And I guess my point was that there wasn't a film doing this in the 80s, right, with their slasher villains. There wasn't, the, the films were not taking time to paint a sympathetic picture of a killer. Yeah. I think the word I would use for how they approach this was delicately delicately that's what i said i said carefully dealt that was the word i was looking for yeah. when i was trying yeah yeah well yeah. they had a caring aspect for billy um you could tell that they weren't just trying to paint him to be some exactly what you said michael myers and rob zombies remake was just fucked from the start there was no hope for that character uh and he it was all about how bleak it was here in this situation and especially within the character of Sister Margaret, it's very clear that if certain choices would have been made, this kid could have naturally processed this trauma that I'm sure he would have issues moving forward, you know, as we all do as we process trauma, but there would have been a hope for this character. He wasn't a bad kid. Billy is not portrayed to be a bad child. He's somebody who went through a horribly devastating event that has managed to manifest itself again and again and in fact was only worsened by the mistreatment he received because to him all of this that he's having all of this punishment that he's receiving it's because in his mind he's doing something wrong when really he's just trying to naturally cope with the feelings and emotions that come with a violent loss yep Yep, I mean there, the, and and again, there just was, there wasn't horror, there weren't slasher films doing this during this time period. Think of all your '80s slasher films. You know, it was basically get the killer, get him in a mask, have him slaughter a bunch of people. We don't really need to even know the killer's backstory. Like even something, even somebody like a Jason Voorhees doesn't have a like a backstory where we even care honestly about him as a you know, a character outside of him being a, a killer. Right. So this film, I think was doing something a little, Oh, I'm going to use this word loosely, but a little groundbreaking for the era. I mean, this was 84. This was in the height of all of this, this, the brainless slasher stuff that was coming out. I think I think maybe the only other film I could think of during the time that was trying to do something a little bit similar and sort of succeeded was sleepaway camp. Yeah. I mean, Troy, I don't think you're using that term loosely. If anything, I think there's a, very progressive element of this film that was really, I think, overshadowed by the whole protesting, the the controversy, that nobody really sat down and watched this film for the the character study that it is. It is a really well-handled character study of a character of an individual who is not given the chance to process trauma. And I'm sounding like Jamie Lee Curtis with the trauma, the trauma, the trauma, the trauma. But, fuck, you know, fuck the Halloween 2018 <laughs> and, and recent Halloween Kills approach to trauma. I really think this movie is a great depiction of someone who is not given the chance to address it properly. It was very progressive, in my opinion. Well, now, after the freeze frame of poor Billy's terrified face, as we know Mother's Beard is going to come in to beat his ass again, we cut to 1984. And we are in a toy store with Mr. Sims and Sister Margaret's. They're asking Mr. Sims to consider giving Billy a job. 
Mr. Sims is like, well, the only job I have isn't for a kid. It's for a man. It's because it's in the stock room and it's, 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 it's carrying heavy boxes and crates and stuff. And, and she's like, oh, well, I totally understand that, that this job would be for a, for a man and not a child. She's like, oh, here Billy is now. Well, how would you like to meet him? And this is when we get, I would say now, it's the, the very infamous scene of the camera starting at Billy's feet, right? And slowly scanning up his whole body, his tight little jeans, his tucked in tight shirt, until you see his beautiful face. I could sit in them fucking dimples. My God. My God, that pan up. Jesus Christ, and that face. Oh, he's so pretty, my Lord. And he's 18 now, so he's legal. He's 18. He's gorgeous. He's a sweetheart. Uh, he's wholesome. Mr. Sims looks at him like I would, and I'd, I'd be like, mm, yeah, you, you have a job, all right. <laughs> <laughs> you are fucking hired. <laughs> but Mr. Sims' his old ass hires him. We proceed just to get this musical montage Oh, are you talking about on the warm side of the door? On the warm side of the door. I was trying to figure out what the fuck is this song about. It's mentioning it's mentioning Christmas, but then it's like it's on the warm side of the door. It means door. when you come in Troy, it's when you come into the household and your family's there and the fire's going, there's always people to love you, kissing and hug you. It's always Christmas on the warm side of the did, door. Did Gilmer McCormick <laughs> sing this too? No, and I don't have the melody down, but God, I was sitting there like, before we started recording, I was I was <laughs> listening to it one more time on the warm side of the door. I really wanted to have it down for this one, but I don't, I don't. Well, it's a musical montage and Billy's doing all his various things. He's, he's, he's. He's the ideal employee, right? And Mr. Sims could not be happier because there are several shots of Mr. Sims, smi- Mr. Sims smiling and nodding his head when he sees Billy doing something good. And just to, just even to hammer in how more wholesome Billy is, fucking Andy, when they're having lunch, is drinking some alcohol and offers it to Billy. And Billy's like shakes his head and says, nope, he has milk. Fucking... God love him. This this Dumplin, he's such a sweetheart. And this musical montage, let me just say, is it completely out of place, the warm side of the door in this movie? Yes. Does it deliver everything I want from a musical montage? Nonetheless, absolutely. It's got joy and rapture, smiles, children and their families getting gifts. People are just happy. My, I mean, the warm side of the fucking door, indeed. I love this moment. I don't know why I'm so happy about it. But uh, it all builds up to them revealing this massive banner that they've crafted that, like, they unroll it to reveal Santa's face, like, in all its glory. And you see Billy, like, <laughs> he's so triggered by it. And he gets all shaky and his lip starts quivering. <laughs> And you know, uh-oh, Billy's going to be triggered by Santa Claus, which is understandable. And then it cuts to a scene with Andy, who is, I guess he's like the stockroom supervisor, I guess. This like Italian looking dude that, you know, he reminds me of like, <laughs> what's that guy? Joe Pesci. He's very Joe <laughs> you know? Pesci. Very. Yeah, a very young Joe Pesci. He's like, oh, but he's a dick. Yeah, he's yelling at. Uh, Billy about his behavior and attitude lately. He's like, you are nothing but you do nothing but give me attitude and your work needs to be done. And Billy's like, I don't care about my work and storms out. And he sees 
Santa Claus in the store. And he freaks out, backs up and falls to the floor. Knocking over a whole display of rubber balls. Knock, knock, he knocks over a whole display. Pamela, who is, I guess she does something there. She may be a clerk or something. It's never really explained. But she's an employee there. She helps him up. And she's like, oh, Billy, you you go home. I'm going to clean this up. You, you Don't worry about it. And he, she's like, um, are you sure you're all right? He's like, yeah, yeah, I'm never better. And she's like, okay, you go home. And then it launches into Billy having a sex dream about Pamela. Uh, Troy, you know what we need to discuss right now, I think, I'm pretty sure, because as a gay man, it is my duty to ensure that every gay man who has somehow avoided acknowledging this moment realize that Billy does in fact have a fuzzy little tookus, and I... When this comes up on the screen, I literally get hot and bothered. I needed to pause it. Well, I paused, I paused it for several reasons. But, I mean, I fanned myself off. I was like, Jesus, like, sit on my fucking face, Billy. My God. It is so fuzzy and just cute. And, like, you get a nice glimpse of it. It, like, cuts over to just these butt cheeks. And it's like, man, not only does he have the perfect smile, a chin dimple, and two dimples on either side, he's got a fuzzy fanny on top of it like this guy is the full package bro he is it's it's a very erotic scene there's like there's like porno style music playing over it and we just got another yeah robert robert brian wilson right that's the actor i would give i would literally cut off a pinky if it would ensure that i could have had billy at, i mean at the time of this filming I, a full pinky. I'd, I'd give up a pinky to, to get with that fuzzy butt. Let me tell I wonder you. why he didn't do go on to do more. I think I know. We'll address it at the end of the episode. I think I kind of know. But, you know, very good looking. Not a bad actor at all. No. Oh, no. He's great. Yeah. I'm wondering what, what was the deal. I, I can only imagine it was self, maybe a, a, a self decision on his part, which we'll talk about by the end of this episode. Right. Um, well, they're ha- he's having sex with Pamela. I could do without her because ugh, she's not the most attractive thing in the world, to be honest with you. Then we're also gay men, so I don't think she's really going to do it for us either well, way. Does she do it with straight men? Does she do it for straight men? She has frizzy know. hair. I don't know. If if there's a straight man listening, can you please let us know? Let us know. Does okay. Pamela yeah, do it I want I want you to rank. Okay, yes. If there's a straight man listening, please rank the the hotness of these women. I know this is like not a good thing to be doing, but I'm just like curious. <laughs> oh my God, uh, we're gonna get we're gonna get canceled. Troy. We're gonna get canceled. But <laughs> I want to know because I'm like, come on! Of all the people you could have paired him with, you pair him with. Pamela, and I, this is even going to sound worse because one of the women I'm going to ask you to rank is Billy's mom. <laughs> she I mean, was, Billy's mom. She yeah, was beautiful. She's, beautiful. She's lovely. Beautiful. Be- okay, so we have Billy's mom, Pam, or Denise, played by Linnea Quigley. Which Let- I mean, we're all going to go Denise because we're gay men, majority of us, and we love Linnea Quigley. But this Pam, get her out of here. Get her out of this scene. Frumpy in that big baggy sweater. I'd rather have him. I'd rather see him with fucking what was Mrs. Martin or whatever that other. Sister Martin. No, Mrs. Randall. (laughs) Mrs. Randall, the other lady, the other bra that works at this toy. The star of this show. Oh, she. Mrs. Randall. Oh, I love her. Why didn't she? Oh, she should have been. (laughs) That's our final girl. That's the only real final girl we need is Mrs. Fucking Randall. Well, she she pretty much gives a final girl type performance, right? Oh, I know, I know, I know. We're getting ahead of ourselves. We are, but okay, so. He has this, he's having this sex scene with fucking Pam and 
it's a dream and Santa comes in, stabs him in the back and pulls the knife down his back. Pretty gnarly looking effect, actually. He wakes up screaming. We know it's a dream and he gets on the floor and kind of mirrors his pose as a little kid from before where he's hugging his knees and rocking back and forth saying, I just want to be good. I just want to be good. Don't punish me. Don't punish me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, everything is getting set up like dominoes to fall. Like, you know shit's about to hit the fan. It only gets worse. Because, like, not only is he being triggered by everything around him, but now Mr. Sims, who is a real dick, and the only person in the store that knows how to handle him and reel him in is that goddamn Mrs. Randall, whom I love. Um, But he has this bright idea that because their resident Santa Claus has broken his ankle ice skating, he decides that the only person that's going to be able to step up and fill the role is, dun-dun-dun, of course, Billy. Talk about triggering. The story here is so perfectly played out because I can't imagine a better scenario to put this kid in to make him finally snap than putting him in the goddamn costume he watched his parents get massacred in. And honestly, Roger, I just want, it does not seem contrived. At all. That's what I'm saying. I know. And that's, that's very surprising. See, I really don't think that this film or the script at least gets nearly as much credit as it deserves. Oh my God. Because I think in any other film that would have been super contrived, it would have come off as super contrived under the, under the handle of any other director. Maybe it just would have seemed contrived. It does not seem that way at all. No. The way it's played. It's like Miss Sims tells Mr. Or uh, Miss uh, Randall tells Mr. Sims about the Santa. And he's like, well, did you call the temp agency? And she's like, well, yeah, but the only problem is the temp agency only has women. And this job requires a very specific type of man. And they look around the store and really like the only person that is physically like, even though he's way younger, like the only, like, the only person that physically could fit the role is Billy, right? Because Andy's ass is like four foot tall. He could be, he'd be playing a dwarf. He'd be playing one of the elves. He would not be playing Santa Claus. So it, it's Billy. They put him in the Santa Claus suit. And obviously you can tell right away, Billy's not too thrilled about it. Um, and Mr. Sims dumbass isn't helping matters. I just, I mean, is it Mr. Sims's fault? I don't know because I don't know if he knew Billy's backstory. Well, no, I mean, I, I think it's pretty, it's made pretty clear that I don't think anybody knew the backstory. Like that his parents were killed by Sam. Because there's a whole situation going on in the background where sister margaret is she knows it now she should have told them well remember there's that whole little moment where she finds out he's gotten a new job and she's like okay hmm i wonder what that new job is and she's you know she tries to call the store uh to inquire but she's not able to get through so she's the only one who's really trying to like put the pieces together she talks to andy 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 tells her that he is now playing santa claus um, but that's, that's coming up. Okay. So yeah. And, and so Billy's dressed as, in this full Santa gear and he starts telling Mr. Sims start telling Billy, well, you know, you better hand, you better learn how to handle these kids because some kids think Santa Claus is scary. That's just silly. Isn't it? And Billy's like, uh, yeah, that's silly. Oh my God. He looks so miserable in this goddamn costume. Understandably. Then so. it cuts to this little brat sitting on his lap. She's crying. Oh my God, she's kicking. She's yeah. <laughs> I would have just picked her up and threw her off, threw her under the floor. But he grabs her and gets into her ear, and he's like, "You, what are you doing? 
you're being very naughty. And if you keep being naughty, I'm going to punish you severely. And shuts her the fuck up. Shuts her the fuck up. She gets her candy cane. And I love these like two broads in line. They're like the worst actresses ever are like, oh, he's so great with kids. And the other one's like, yeah, he really is, isn't he? And seeing this grown man basically go like tell a small child to go fuck herself is so (laughs) satisfying to witness. Yeah. Oh, yeah. This little bitch. Like, (laughs) yeah, he put her in her place. Now, this is when Sister Margaret calls a store and Andy does answer. And he's like, no, I'm sorry. Billy doesn't work here anymore. It work in this room anymore. And she's like, oh, what's he doing? And he's like, oh, well, he is now playing Santa Claus. Ho, ho, ho. And you can tell she knows this is not good. Does she not try to call back a second time, though, or is it just me? That is, you're, I think you're thinking of, like, the end with the orphanage. Okay, my bad. Oh, my God, you're right. She's on the phone a couple of times. You're right. No, she does call. She talks to Andy, and then that gets her to go to the yes, store. Yes, well, that's, why, correct, she, that's why she ends up at the store a little too late. Yes, as we're about to find out. But she gets there because now it's the employee. It's Ira's Toys Christmas Party, which I'm telling you, Roger, this looks like a fucking gay old time. Oh, my God. I wish parties like this were like this nowadays. I've never had. Yeah, I want to go to this fucking Christmas. There's booze. There's snacks. There's singing. There's fucking Mrs. Randall. Well, I mean, first of all, Mr. Sims, he like locks the door and he's like, seven o'clock. It's over. Time to get shit fast. And then like he's pouring drinks for everybody, including Billy, who is, let us remind everyone, 18 years old. So this man, his employer, is giving an 18-year-old alcohol, which seems to be fine with everybody. Well, it, it is Utah. I don't, <laughs> I don't know what their alcohol laws are, but I, I, I don't know. Touche. Maybe, maybe in Utah, it's just like, hey, give them whatever they want. Then Mr. But Sims yeah. is also clearly a raging alcoholic. So I think he gets to a point where he just cannot comprehend age or reason so yeah he's just pouring billy drinks which is only probably fueling the rage burning inside of him at this point yeah and they start to sing we wish you a merry christmas we wish you it's a bunch of drunk people singing we wish you a merry christmas when billy sees pamela and andy sneak away like andy's like leading pamela away from the group right drunken mr sims comes up and starts to converse with ricky about what he's what he's doing and ricky's like you just said fucking ricky oh my god i'm so, oh don't you god. bring that billy. into this room oh no billy i meant billy you guys know i mean billy that's what we get for watching these two fucking movies so close to each other but yeah i mean R- billy billy he can he starts conversing about with billy about what he's what he's doing and billy's like well i'm thinking about my parents Mr. Sims is like, oh, oh, that's good. A boy should think about his parents. And and Billy's like, well, they're dead. And this is when Mr. Sims does say, oh, yeah, my bad. I totally forgot about that. So he must knew, must have known that his parents were dead. Apparently, he didn't know, like, the whole story of a Santa Claus killing. Yeah, I mean, I wonder if they really, upon his being hired, if they're like, oh, his parents are dead and were killed by Santa. Like, I guess it's not really the time or place to introduce that kind of information, vital information, you know. Um, so I'll give a guy a pass on this information here because I really wouldn't expect or anticipate he would know those details. 
but then this is when he's like, hey, you better get, you better sober up because you got a long night ahead of you. And Billy's like, what? He's like, yeah, you don't, you know what Santa does on Christmas Eve, don't you? And Billy's like, yeah, I know what he does. <laughs> That's dark. It is dark. <laughs> now he sees Pam and Andy go in the back room, the back stock room. And back there, Andy's like trying to pull her deeper into the back of the room. He's like, I have a present for you. And she's like, why didn't you just give it to me in front of everybody? He's like, oh, it's not a present for everyone else to see. It's just for you. And you're going to love it. He's talking about his dick. Yeah, he's clearly raping this woman. Like, there there ain't no question about it. He's luring her in without any discussion of sex whatsoever. He's promising a gift only to eventually, like, start, like, nibbling on her neck. And she's like begging him to stop saying please no please stop please i don't want to do this like it is definite rape oh it's rape it's rape drunk now mr sims and miss randall are super drunk they're singing that santa's watching santa's creeping they're slurring their words oh my God. sims can barely get the lyrics out whatsoever i love it no and billy goes back into the stock room and we do hear pamela repeatedly telling andy to stop it don't do that. Stop it. Billy comes in and he, he's able to see them. And there's our ever famous Silent Night, Deadly Night blouse rip. Oh, God. They love ripping a blouse here at Silent Night, Deadly Night. He just rips her blouse. It's the same, like, just grabbing on either side of the blouse and just tearing it open. So the, the boobs just bounce out. And her boobs, she's not wearing a bra. Of course not. And her boobs, yeah, flop out. I'm like, where are you getting these sweaters that they can be ripped so easily? Everyone, every woman in this world, the cinematic universe, has the most rippable blouses and sweaters. She he she slaps him, and he's like, "You bitch!" I'm like, "This guy, Roger, has some fucking nerve. This is their place of employment. Does he not realize that he has to like, if he rapes her, he's gonna have to come to work tomorrow, and she's gonna be like, what are you thinking?" Well, first of all, I'm trying to, like, acknowledge that this was the 80s and women were more terrified of these things and oftentimes didn't come forward about them, which is a sad way to think, but, like, that is reality. But aside from that, it just seems like nobody in this world is afraid of legal repercussions. That's the one thing that's inconsistent with, like, reality overall. Nobody here thinks of legal repercussions. Mother Superior didn't think about it when she beat those two grown adults with a belt while they were having sex. And now Andy sure doesn't seem to care about raping this gal at his place of employment while other people are celebrating the next room over. It just seems to be like, eh, an average everyday scenario here at Ira's Toys. (laughs) (laughs) Raping. Yeah, of course, everything that Andy is doing, the ripping of the blouse, the slapping of... Pamela, the throwing her down is mirroring exactly what happened to Billy's mom. So it's triggering his flashback, right? It's like a, it's, it's parallel. Like you see Andy rip her, her, this Pamela's blouse open. Then all of a sudden Billy is seeing his mom's blouse being ripped open. He, I love this part because it's like a close up of his face. You can tell he's like losing it. And I think it's such an effective moment when he snaps, like the moment he snaps is when Pamela is screaming, no, 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 please, no. And he sees Andy slap her. That's like the moment he snaps. And there's like this one tear that runs down his left eye that I don't know. To me, it just adds so much 
to the to the process of him losing it because when he goes over, he finally snaps. He goes over and yells "naughty" at um, Andy, and he's crying. Like he takes the creates the Christmas lights, wraps them around Andy's neck, and like lifts him up, and and basically strangles Andy to death with the Christmas lights, right? And as he's doing it, there is literally like this tear coming down his eye. Oh yeah. I mean, I think the whole moment where he has his final big break before he is fully snapped is extremely well executed. It's again, we go back to the usage of flashbacks, but there's they whereas the sequel does not understand the proper usage of flashbacks, this film uses them properly uh, and uses them in a way that amplifies the moment and uses various takes and angles and shots and different things that just really help enhance this kind of climactic buildup to his break. Um, I think this is one of the best moments in the film because you are getting a very clear picture painted for you that this kid is about to lose his shit and you completely understand why and earlier in the review you said that this film it could have been heavy-handed and it could have really addressed this material in a way that did not seem natural or didn't seem to flow in like a realistic or natural way i think this is like this perfectly makes sense he sees this traumatic experience happening a lot of what's going on is so similar to what he saw you know, and this, these memories that he's been trying to suppress. And this is such a violent depiction of what he experienced, of this rape, this violent kind of rape, that it's like it's the last straw. And he breaks, and understandably so. And this is why we sympathize with this character. He makes some awful choices, but, I mean, this is why I think we feel the way we feel for Billy. Well, I think it was sort of a smart move to have him snap and go after Andy. Because right now, nobody in the audience is rooting for Andy. We've never... No, I mean, Andy is not a likable character to begin with. But then to have him, like, so blatantly uh, try to rape this woman, we don't... We're not approving of that, right? So we we are wanting Billy to step in and do something. And he does... Unfortunately, his mind has snapped so much that it's he's beyond kind of doing what he needed to do to this one person that is bad, truly bad. He's beyond returning from that. He has totally snapped. This whole uh, Santa Claus punishing people persona has taken over. Because after he strangles Andy with the Christmas lights, throws him down on the ground, Pamela, he, he looks at Pamela very sympathetically. I do like this moment too. He turns his head towards her. He's very sympathetic. He doesn't look intimidating at all. He his the, his face is very sympathetic. He still has that tear going down his eye. And I think that if she and I'm not putting the blame on her, that's not what I'm saying here. If she would have reacted differently, it would have ended differently. Does that make sense? Oh, I absolutely agree. If she would have acted differently, she would not have been killed. It was the fact that she freaked out, admitted, I mean, it makes sense. I would probably freak out too. I just saw this dude come in and kill this dude. She freaks out. She starts calling him crazy and, and and tells him to get away from her. You're crazy. You're crazy. Well, it's the last thing you want to tell somebody that has had an, a psychotic break, right? Yeah. Yeah. So now, in, so now in his mind, she is ungrateful for what he did for her and she must be punished. So he takes a box cutter grabs her and it's kind of a 
a sad moment because we do know, okay, he's beyond, you know, he's, he's, he's past the point of no return. Now he shoves the, um, box cutter in her stomach and pulls it up and kills, throws her on the ground and, and, and kills her. Two things I want to point out with this moment. First with the actual kill itself, it is, it is a sad moment and it is pretty devastating because a i mean it's really gruesome you see the blade go all the way up to her chest so he drags it all he guts her uh and you have a shot where she's looking him in the eyes grabbing onto his sleeve as she's dying out and like pamela as frumpy as she may be was never anything but kind to him and that's something to acknowledge she was very nice to him like when he you know when he knocked over the display of balls and everything she was kind to billy um, and so he's not able to differentiate that anymore, and that is sad. The fact that he has lost that ability to care. I feel bad. I mean, if she, like I said, if she would have just, if she would have been in a, if she could have composed herself enough to be, to appease him for a minute, you know what I mean? And been like, oh, okay, thank you, Billy, or, or whatever, or not overreacting and start screaming at him. I mean, she could have lived, I think. I really think that he, she would have lived. Oh, I agree. It'd be very much like the scene in part two where he, where Ricky kills the guy, runs him over, and then the girlfriend comes and says, thank you. Uh, you know, and she lets him go. I think that would have very, I think if Pamela, and I don't want to go this route, I, 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 again, this is a film, it's fiction, I know that, but I'm just, in my mind, she, Pamela could have ended this entire thing if she would have just not over i'm not saying overreacted but would have reacted differently could have composed herself and went and and said billy okay thank you let's come come on let's get you some help or let's get you out of here and took him and then everything could have been stopped right then they could have called the police this wouldn't have had to have happened and i'm not blaming pamela you i like i said i'd do the exact same thing but i'm just saying it was just that whole his mind, he was already fragile. And then her reacting the way she did and screaming at him and calling him crazy just did not sit well with him. Obviously it it made him think that she was naughty after she's killed. He proceeds to basically pick off everybody else in the, in the um, toy store, starting with Mr. Sims drunk ass who hears some commotion from the storage room and goes back there and this this poor dude, if I could say anything, he was probably so drunk he didn't even feel what happened to him. So that's the only that's this dude. He's stumbling around. He can't walk. He can't talk. He's slurring everything. He goes in the back storage room, and he's like, "Who's in here? Uh, come out!" Uh. And just as he turns around to leave, Billy pops out with a hammer. And embeds it into his skull, the claw, the claw side first into his skull. You get a really, um, gnar- like nasty blood splatter here. That is the only thing that really makes it pop to me is the fact that it is like textured and has like brain matter in it. Like you don't see the penetration of the hammer going into the skull, but you get this really gruesome, grotesque, like spray of blood all over some cardboard boxes. And yeah, you see like chunks in it. It, um, it's a well-played sequence. This whole sequence within the store moving forward is fantastic, I've got to say. And these characters, 
none of these characters, other than Andy, none of these characters are individuals that you feel negatively towards. Uh, they all have a certain el- element of likability. Even Mr. Sims and the fact that he's just like a drunken fool. Like, I mean, nobody here is necessarily a bad person. So it makes for um, a feeling of, uh, like, you really want to see these characters make it through this, the events that transpire. Um, unfortunately, they do not. Because now we are led to a perky Mrs. Randall who is eager to get out of the shop. Well, you're trying to figure out at this point when in my mind, I'm trying to figure out like what, what is he punishing it? Mr. Sims and Miss Randall for, is it for being not, is it for being, is it drinking? Because there is a theme even as, even after this particular scene in the, in the toy store where he's killing people that he thinks are being naughty. Right. So I was, I could never understand what, the per- what his purpose for killing Mrs. Randall and Mr. Sims were because he could have easily just left the store, right? And let them be. So I'm thinking it was just because they're drunk? Yeah, I mean, uh, I've, I've never really delved into that aspect of these characters that much. Um, I kind of think it's like the initial shock of that break like, I think he's just killed two people, and he's kind of just in that raw, intense kind of... And now, this isn't necessarily a good excuse, but, like, he just had this big, shocking, traumatic revelation. And and I think that he's kind of just on, a, like, a bit of a rampage. And then when he hones his focus in as he, as he proceeds, he really starts to find people that he, yeah, quote-unquote, deems to be naughty. But I think he's seeing a lot of these people as naughty. Uh, especially when you consider where he goes after this, he also seems to find sexuality in general to be naughty. So I think he's I think he's not very picky about who he finds to be naughty. Everyone's pretty fucking naughty. Yeah, I just I, I was just thinking about that. I just assumed it was their drunk. They were drunk, and he considers that something that's naughty, right? Because we know we know based on previous interactions with him and like that he doesn't really like to drink you know he, he's been offered alcohol although tonight was this particular night was a different story because mr sims made him drink alcohol and he's dressed as santa claus so he's out of his element anyways so after this after mr sims is killed miss miss randall you know she's wondering what the hell is going on all the lights go off and she's like mr sims Mr. Sams with her annoying voice. Come out and see this, Mr. Sams. And she's talking about how the pretty the toy store looks with all the lights off. He's not coming. So she goes into the back room to find him. And he, immediately we she sees his dead body with the hammer still sticking out of the skull. It does a great triple push in on this shot. I mean, normally a triple push in is a bit dated for me, but I love how it's just like dun dun dun. You get like a really great shot of the the hammer sticking out of like the top of his head, um, and this leads into what is the I would say like the standout chase sequence of this film. But I have to say, Troy, this is shockingly enough one of my like favorite chase scenes from the era or in like a slasher in general and it's honestly because surprisingly mrs randall really does a lot of things right and honestly should have survived (laughs) yeah i agree she does it all right man Uh, the moment she sees the body she books it to the phone 
and goes to call 911, like, right off the bat. Like, holy fuck. She's locked. Well, first she tries to get out of the shore, but she she's locked in because they lock it from the inside. Mr. Sims has the keys. So she sees the phone. She tries to call 911, and boom, Billy appears with the axe, chops the fucking um, phone line, and so she's off. She's off running. She's off running. She actually d- does something very smart. Well, Billy is hunting her and he's singing to himself as he's going down the aisle with the ax and he sees her. She's wearing this like feathered hat throughout the whole film. And he actually sees the top of the hat, like sticking out from behind a pile of boxes. So he goes up to these boxes real carefully, raises the ax, brings it down at the same moment. The boxes fall. It's just her hat. She comes busting out of the, of some boxes that are stacked on the other side. Right? She, does something super smart and super stupid at the same time. She how she does something that you never see slasher character or characters in slasher movies do. How many times have we seen slasher movies where the a character has like tripped the villain or got the villain to fall over and drop his weapon and they take off when they could have easily grabbed the weapon. She actually this bitch actually grabs his axe. Now what she does wrong is she should have bashed the fucker in the head right then and there. I agree. I agree. But I do also have to say that her rationale is not stupid. She grabs the axe because the bitch is, she's a boss ass bitch. I'm sorry. Mrs. Randall is a boss bitch. She books it to the glass door. And she literally, without hesitation, is about to bash this glass in with the axe so she can escape. Her mentality is flight. I don't think she's a fighter. She's a she's a flighter. But knowing what okay, but here's my thing: knowing what happens to her, she should have bashed the fucker in the head with the axe. I agree. I agree. And also, like, what are the chances? Who would have thought that a toy store would carry real fucking, fucking bow, and, bow arrow. and arrows? I was wondering: <laughs> is this a sporting goods store? And that's this dangerous. Like a, Children should have like, that. This is yeah, because this is very much a child's toy store. This is like a KB toy store, right? And it has a fucking live bow and or a real live, a real bow and arrow in it. But I'm just saying, like knowing what happens to her, I wish she would have. She wouldn't even have to use the sharp end of the axe, just the like the blunt end, and just bashed him in the head to knock him out because she, her ass would have survived. She was literally seconds away from breaking that glass and getting it out of there. Where he, when he yells "Stop!" and he has a bow and arrow, he shoots shoots her. It goes through her back, out her stomach, and the poor broad. Drops dead. She falls right in a wintry display where there's a Santa statue like yes. bobbling over top her. It's a great sequence. I felt so bad for her. I know because she was so pleasant and cheerful. And she could have, she could have survived. She should have survived. Let's take a moment to raise a glass to Mrs. Randall, everybody. Yes, Mrs. Randall, you should have survived. Shoulda, woulda, coulda. Oh, I, I still maintain you should have bashed him in the head with that axe when you had it, girl. That was your mistake. Uh, now we cut to Sister Margaret. This is when Sister Margaret shows up. Too little, too late, Sister Margaret. Though well-intentioned you may be. <laughs> yeah. She shows up, gets into the toy store, and immediately finds Mrs. Randall's dead body there right in the entryway. Screams. And it cuts to a bunch of carolers singing. Oh, my God. These carolers are fucking awful. <laughs> they're carolers. They're singing outside of a house. We go into the house, and we see Denise played by the very iconic Linnea Quigley, who has been in some very 
prominent horror films. She was in Nine of the Demons, what we talked about. She was in Return of the Living Dead. She's been in Graduation Day. She was the 80s pretty much go-to victim. She was like, if you need a great set of tits and some fantastic personality. And a cool death scene. And a cool death get scene, her, yeah. Get, get, get Linnea Quigley. You're golden. She's got the whole shebang. And she's always like popping her cute little tush up. And no different here because she's got these Daisy Dukes on with riding up her cheeks. I mean, she looks good. I get it. I get why she plays these roles. She does a great job with it. And though her scene here is very brief. Um, it is one of the most memorable moments in the movie. Yes, it is. She is making out with her boyfriend. And as they're making out on the pool table, little girl, little Cindy tries, tries to come down the stairs and interrupt. And she yells at her to go back upstairs. Ugh. Cindy is such a cop. Yeah, I don't like Cindy. They go back to making out. I mean, this is when she pulls her top off. The boyfriend takes his shirt off. They're going to go right at it. And she, he even makes a comment about, oh, two balls are going into the corner pocket. <laughs> Oh yeah, they're on a, they're fucking uh-huh. on a pool table, right? Yeah, yeah, and she hears jingles, jingles. Now these jingling of these bells become very prominent in the film, right? They have been because it, Billy is wearing a Santa Claus costume that has uh, a bell, a jingle bell belt that he's wearing. So every time you hear these, every time he's near you, hear these jingling of bells. But she thinks it's the cat that that wants in. So she's like, okay, I'm gonna go let the cat in. She puts her shorts on. But she doesn't put her fucking top on. She's walking up, bare tits hanging out, opens her front door, the neighborhood, where there's carolers literally across the street. Her tits full out. I mean, can you imagine if those carolers are like, sweet silver bells, all sick Christmas is here. And they turn around and there's Lenia Quigley's jugs just hanging out as she's screaming for this cat. <laughs> she wants, She tries to let the cat in. Finally, after screaming for it a few minutes, the cat comes running in. And as the cat comes in and she's getting ready to shut the door, Billy jumps in into frame with his axe and says, punish. Again, is she just being punished for being topless outside? Which, I mean, I guess I guess it's public display of nudity, what she's doing. Either that or having sex. Maybe he was spying on. I don't know. I don't know. I'm assuming. I'm a- I don't know. Well, he did have that night. I mean, he had that nightmare where he was thinking of like the, basically, I think his, his budding sexuality is really one of the things that's causing him to have such trauma. Because remember the nightmare earlier when Santa, like, stabbed him while he was kissing on Pamela? Remember that? I think one of the things that's really helping set all of this off is his raging hormones. He's 18. I mean, he's on top of everything, he's also at a point where he's starting to feel things, want things, you know? And, and so I think that's one of the underlying reasons that really pushed him over the edge along with everything else in his life that's been horribly traumatic but i do have to point out that i love that when she closes the door and of course he axes right through it this is the thinnest plywood door i've ever seen in my life it's made of like paper mache i mean this door goes down you could have just blown on it like the three fucking pigs and this door would have just given yeah (laughs) it just it shatters with one axe blow like totally shatters in he goes in and chase. I mean, it's a it's a it's a tiny little chasing. He chases her around the living room for a, for a like a few seconds before he catches her. Right? It's not elaborate. Um, her boyfriend's downstairs, oblivious to this going on. Little Cindy's oblivious to it going on. Uh, but he grabs Denise and picks her up, and in probably one of the more iconic death scenes of the '80s, proceeds to 
impale her on a large set of deer antlers to the point where we see the deer antlers like coming out of her stomach. Like there's a scene, it doesn't look too great, but there is a shot of like her, the, her stomach being pushed out by the antlers before they explode out of it. Uh, and she is hung on these antlers. Another scene recreated in the 2012 remake, just to acknowledge, I've got to say that while I hear what you're saying that the overall effect is, it's not like the best of the 80s. It's still, it does, it services the job. But the physicality of the sequence is fantastic. Uh, he throws an axe at her at one point, it mounts in the wall, and then she goes to run and he just grabs her and he just picks her up. And I think, I I, I find moments like this really terrifying because when you think of like a larger man grabbing a, a smaller woman, similar to like a Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the sequence with Pam where she goes to run and he grabs her from behind. And like, what the fuck is she going to do? He like bear hugs her and she's kicking and she's screaming, but the record player is playing downstairs. So the boyfriend is clueless to it. The, the, the overall physicality of this guy just literally just gripping around this, this frail young woman and forcing her body against this mounted deer head until she's literally mounted there up on the wall. I mean, it's played out so well. It really is, I think, I agree, one of the most iconic kill sequences of the era. Um, and I love how her the visual of her on this wall carries through to the next sequence um, because she's just, she's just hanging there like a piece of the decor. And so finally the boyfriend goes upstairs to look for her because she hasn't come down and he sees the door shattered, right? Um, he's like, what the fuck? This isn't good. And he's like, Denise, Denise, where are you? So he's walking around uh, until he kind of comes to the wall that this deer head is mounted on and slowly looks up and sees her hanging from the deer antlers. There's this great shot of him passing by, like looking around for her, and you just see the legs dangling behind him in soft focus. And I mean, I, I could, I could see this happening. Like, like he's just kind of in shock of like the fact that oh my god, the door's been busted open. Like he enters the room, he hasn't even looked around yet. So he's just like kind of like, what he even makes a line about like. I'm going to kill her. Why does he say, he says something like along the, if this is some kind of joke, I'm going to kill you, I think is what he says. And that's right when he turns and there's the reveal of her body. It's it's really kind of expertly played. Yeah. Billy grabs him, comes out of the, you know, comes out of nowhere, grabs him, throws him on the floor. They they throw a few, a few punches at each other before this guy grabs the fireplace poker and, and whacks Billy with it and knocks him to the floor. Now, again, dumb decision. I would have ran out of the house, you know, ran, ran straight out of the house to the neighbors to get help. This, this guy stops to call the police. Well, he doesn't just knock him to the floor. He actually beats him over a railing. Like he does like beat him down over a railing and you see Billy like flip over the edge. Well, I would still would have got my ass out of the house. Yeah. Like, this I'm is why you'd th- survive and I wouldn't. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to stand there and call the police knowing that it's going to take him a while to answer. It's going to take him a while to tell him what happened. I'm going to run straight out that fucking broken door, run across the street to the car- carolers and be like, hey, bitches, we got a problem. Stop uh, singing. Stop singing. singing. My, there is a, an, uh, there is a impaled woman over at the, across the street. We need to get help here <laughs> because he's not even the, he, okay. Because Roger nine one one nine one one doesn't even have a chance to answer before Billy grabs him, 
throws him away from the phone and proceeds to like beat the shit out of him before grabbing him and throwing him out the second story window. Yeah. I, well, I also want to acknowledge this fucker. Like when he realizes his girlfriend's not back, he puts his shirt back on only for Billy to grab him so forcefully that he rips his shirt off. And then he proceeds to physically launch him out this window in a very violent way. Like his body like does a full flip and like he lands shirtless in the snow and the, the reveal of the body is pretty fucking gnarly. I mean, you see big shards of glass like sticking out of this guy. It's it's pretty wild. Yeah, it's a it's a great effect. Um, there's glass out of his face, out of his stomach. So as the as Billy's leaving, little Cindy sees him and comes out to him and it's like Santa Claus. You're definitely like, oh fuck, he's gonna kill this kid. <laughs> yeah, you really think so? Because as she's talking to him, he's he's asking her whether she's been naughty. Or if she's been good. And she's like, I've been good. He's like, are you sure? And he starts to pull the box cutter that he used to kill um, Pam out of his pocket. And you are thinking, oh, gosh, she's going to kill this little girl. He's not. She's sweet. She's been good. So he gives her the box pre- box cutter as a present. And she looks confused as fuck about it, as would I. Yeah, she's like, what the fuck am I going to do with this shit? <laughs> yeah. And, and he leaves. And now we are in a cop car where that we find out that there's been orders to bring a guy dressed as Santa Claus in. And they're like, oh, God, we have to bring Santa Claus in on Christmas Eve. And as they're driving, they see a Santa Claus climbing through the window of this house. They stop their police car, burst in the house, don't even knock. And the, the wife's like, what are you doing? What are you doing? They run upstairs. The Santa Claus is in the room with the little girl. We find out it's just the little girl's daddy. She's like, Daddy. These cops don't follow any form of protocol whatsoever. No, they don't. They don't. They just bust in. They were going to. Anyway, so that's, yeah, that was a little scene to kind of give us an impression that maybe Billy was climbing into people's windows, even though. That's not at all what he's doing. The cops here are just fucking bumbling assholes. So we cut now to a scene with two high school age boys who are in the middle of the woods with their sleds they're gonna sled again another setup for an iconic sequence like this movie is brimming with really memorable sequences you got to give it credit for that yeah and i love the i love how isolated and cold this whole scene looks there's it's snowing everywhere but they're, they're in the middle of the woods there's no light or it's just really atmospheric i think and as they're gonna go down the sleds you do hear the jingle of bells and the one boy's like hey did you hear that Someone's out there and the other one's like, oh, you're just being a pussy. Go down, you know, and these two boys, you could tell are just like dorks. Right. And he's like, you and your stupid sled need to go down the hill to the one. And as he's getting ready to go, these two other 30 year old men jump out. Literally, one looks 30 and the other one looks exactly like Eddie Haskell from Leo. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And they have a, a, a little bit of cute funny banter between the two guys it eventually becomes four because these two bullies do show up um but i i like even though they're not the best actors i like this whole sequence because for being such a minor moment they give a really good setup for a why these guys these kids are bad kids and b this kind of like really realistic believable kind of bully scenario between a few younger kids and the the guys that go around kind of fucking you know sassing them and causing mischief and fucking with them yeah because the two bullies 
actually like the one punches the, the one of the kids in the stomach and then they, the other one throws the other one down and they tell him to get the fuck out of here and they take their sleds. But not before the one calls them ugly and very stupid. Uh, not necessarily the most threatening statement, but uh, it's true. These two guys are both ugly and very stupid. Yeah, so the bully number one goes down first. The one that looks like Eddie Haskell goes down on his sled. And, you know, it's not his sled. It goes down on the sled he stole from these other boys. And he's having a gay old time. Oh, he makes it to the bottom of the hill, right? And the other one, the 30 look, 35-year-old looking one, he's like, okay, now watch this. And he gets on the sled and he's starting to go down. <laughs> and like halfway down, fucking Billy jumps out of the woods and snotty. And swings the axe, chops the guy's head off. There is a scene where his friend is waiting for him at the bottom of the, the hill. And you see the sled come down. Yeah, it's just a headless body like <laughs> on the sled. And then the dude's freaking out. And then the head starts roll, <laughs> rolls right behind it. The headless reveal here is phenomenal, I think. Um you see it coming from a distance at first. Like, I mean, you you know, you've seen Billy jump out and the kids like slide like sleds into the screen screaming. And then it cuts to his friend like watching for him and you see the figure coming down the hill in the shadows. And then like you see the like the friend's face and their names are I think Bob and Matt because the one kid does say like, "Oh, it's Bob and Matt." <laughs> like he, he acknowledges them. So so whichever one the ginger is, Bob or Matt, he um he has a big shit-eating grin on his face at first, and it's like slowly melts into like a look of shock and then terror as you see like this, you know, his friend's body with a big bloody pulpy wound at the neckline, uh, and he starts just screaming. And like one thing I love about this sequence is it has a male screaming in a way that like it is blood curdling. Like you don't really hear men just break down and start screaming at the top of their lungs in films. This guy just loses his shit, and it's it's really well played. This whole scene is, you're right, it's like, it's the stark, cold, bleak, like, wooded environment where there's nobody else around. It just looks so, like, abandoned and isolated and desolate, and, like, all of the shadow play because of the trees. It's just, like, it, I remember seeing this scene when I was younger and being actually terrified of being in this kind of an environment for a while because it seems so plausible to me oh absolutely yes just the, like you said just the isolation of the scene any, any anything could happen and there's nobody around to, to witness it and i just imagine like being in this other kid's shoes where what do you you're in the middle of the friend or you're in the middle of the woods sorry and all of a sudden your friend just comes down headless with fucking his head roll. I mean, just feel like the helplessness, the, uh, I don't know. One thing I want to say here real quick too, because we've had two, well, I mean, technically three, you have the store sequence, but you've had these two kind of random kills back to back. Billy's on a spree at this point. And I got to say, this movie is knocking it out of the park with these kill sequences. I really think that this is one of the reasons this movie is still so renowned and acknowledged as being one of the standout pieces of, of 80s horror cinema holidays aside uh to this day one thing i kind of wish is that they actually would have given us one more of these kind of random kill sequences because once these kills start it really plows forward you're not really exploring billy's psyche any further he snapped 
you accept it, we're moving on. I kind of just wish there was more of this. I wouldn't have minded allowing him to kind of go on an even broader massacre. But at this t- at this point, the film's running time is getting up there, so I can see why they, they kind of did it. But And you're trying to get to the... You know, what happens after this whole th- sequence is that we get a cut to the police station. Miss or Sister Margaret's there sleeping and the captain comes up to her and he's like, wakes her up. And she's like, oh, is there any news? And he's like, yeah, but it's it's bad. There's been three more murders. And she's like, oh, no. And he's like, and he's he's eluded our guys our my my men all night and he's not stupid and she's like no he's not stupid and in fact everything that he's done has a reason to it if you know his history and he's like then we should be able to figure out where he's going next and she's looks she kind of considers for a moment and then she has the realization of where she's going next and it is exactly where he's going next because we cut to the orphanage yeah, we're now in the midst of daylight, um, and so the evening has passed at this point. And uh, I do want to acknowledge one moment. I don't really think we touched on it. The, the There was a moment where Billy was on the road and a cop car drove by, and he, he rolled into a ditch. He, he has intentionally been avoiding the police. Like, he knows what he's doing. He knows he's in trouble. So when the cop makes this statement, says this line that you just brought up, um, yeah, that's absolutely true. He's he's very aware of what is going down, um, and he's not stupid. And Sister Margaret still has this feeling of sympathy towards him, all things considered. Um, she's still concerned for his well-being, even in spite of everything he's done. But now coming upon the orphanage, it's the, it is the next day, the evening is past, it's broad daylight, there are children out playing, uh, and kids are opening their gifts like Christmas is here. Christmas is here. And one of the police officers, a, a police officer, a random police officer gets a radio notification that any officers in the area need to go to the orphanage immediately. And they need to be on a lookout for a guy in a Santa suit. And they're even over the radio, the captain's like, and you can shoot to kill if you have to. I'm like, oh, that's probably not a good thing to tell. <laughs> uh anybody like over the radio oh just shoot to kill um because what happens is this cop goes to the um to the orphanage as the kids are outside playing they're expecting santa claus to come to visit because mother superior of course is telling the kids when they were opening their presents she's like you guys need to write a letter to santa claus a thank you letter to santa claus for his visit later and then she's like um yeah, write a letter to Santa Claus. Then we do get this like really short little scene of this little fucking girl with her doll on the phone of the in Mother Superior's office or wherever, where she's like pretending her doll's on the phone. And she's like, "Well, we gotta go now. Mother Superior wants us to write a letter to Santa Claus," and she leaves the phone off the hook. Oh my god! If anyone in this movie deserved to die, it's that fucking little bitch. She caused so much much problem for everybody. Such turmoil all because this little bitch left the phone off the hook. So uh, we do have now this kind of shift in tone where this officer Barnes is his name kind of becomes like a focus for a minute. Um, It's an interesting choice and I don't think it's a bad one. I think it it works all things considered, but it does take a little bit of this, like, as we said, police procedural kind of vibe for a minute. Um, I really think this is what the 2012 remake leaned into was this small segment of the movie they decided to make it the majority of the film but it works like it's interesting and there's some really cool sequences with officer barnes 
coming up, but it does kind of, like I was saying, that middle section of the movie where it's starting to kind of get into this vibe of being just like this massacre film, this serial murder, uh, the serial murderer at large kind of vibe. Um, now it's a little more of like slow burn suspense. Like where is Billy? Exactly what's going on? Uh, Billy is no longer the focus at this point. It, it definitely becomes Officer Barnes, Sister Margaret. He kind of fades into the background from like you know for suspense and mystery purposes. It doesn't last very long because literally we are in the last probably eight minutes of the film. So it's this the, the shift of focus from Billy to these other characters is very very short, which for me is is fine um, because I. I at this point, I'm invested in in the Billy character, not necessarily that he's murdering people, just like what is ultimately going to happen to him. And as this officer pulls up to the orphanage, he does see we see Santa Claus approaching. All the kids are excited, and it's it's actually little Ricky that runs up to Santa first. And immediately, the officer stops his car, gets out, and is like, "Freeze! Freeze! Stop! Stop!" And the Santa Claus doesn't listen, so the officer shoots. Santa in the in the back like three times, and, and kills him in front of all of the freaking kids. Yes, yes. Um, Officer Barnes literally commits homicide <laughs> and shoots what ends up being an innocent man. But not only an innocent man, he's also a priest, and on top of that, he's a deaf priest. <laughs> and he shoots him in cold blood in front of all of these children, and like. Moving forward, nobody seems to really care. Like, he apologizes to Mother Superior, who is now in a wheelchair. But, like, it's not really what I would consider properly addressed. Um, he's not, like, I don't know, taken away in, in, a, in handcuffs or stripped of his badge. <laughs> they let him continue to do his job. They're like, oh, yeah, keep searching. He's not, I'm sorry. If, if an officer shoots and kills an innocent person, they're taken off of duty right then and there, right? There's an investigation. They're not allowed then to wander around and continue to 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 wreak havoc on. Yeah. So this is one area where we've got to stretch, you know, reality a little bit. But it's fine. Up to this point, it really hasn't been too too much of that. But yeah, he definitely just shot a priest, a deaf priest. And a deaf the priest. priest is, and it's all fine. He's wheeled away. People, I, I, no, nobody else shows up. I love that the, all that happens is like two ambulance workers come, load the body into the into the ambulance and take off. There's no there's no, you know, investigation of the crime scene. And mother, mother uh, superior <laughs> scolds him, but then she's like carry on. Like like so this guy's just like hanging around after killing the local priest and then mother superior is like I know what happened was just traumatic, but we should all sing. So like so like she gathers the children around, the children who mind you just saw a priest get shot in cold blood, and she forces them to sing uh, what what like deck the halls? I think <laughs> deck the halls, deck the halls, and then. But I love the I I love the fact that all of these children are like, what four to five years old, but the voices the voices that are used to actually provide the singing sounds like adults. <laughs> it's so jar. It's so funny. Because you know none of these little fuckers could sing. They just grabbed them off the street as extras and paid their parents probably you know a couple dollars a day. None of them could sing, so they had like, literally were playing a track of like adults singing "Deck the Halls," but it's supposed to be a bunch of six and seven year olds. But it does make for a cool sequence. It leads in. It kind of rolls into this next moment where, um, where Officer Barnes starts like stalking around the orphanage. 
looking for any signs of Billy. And so he, like, is wandering around this very, like, ice, again, desolate, snowy tundra, um, exploring around the building. And you can hear the voices singing Deck the Halls kind of fading out. Like, they're still in the background lingering. It makes it very eerie. And then, like I said, it's just it's just this isolated, this, this, this schoolhouse looks so lonely. It's like out in the middle of nowhere, just surrounded by bleak, snowy landscapes. And as the officer's out there looking around the property, he hears, uh, he sees a door, hears and sees a door like blowing open and, and slamming shut. So he goes to investigate and it's like, it, it leads to like a underground like cellar. So he goes down, looks around. We get that really ominous piano score from the beginning opening credits that kicks in the, just the banging of the piano keys and like, an it's like, uh, and he's down there looking nothing. Nobody's down there. So he comes back up at the stairs and he, as he reaches the top of the stairs, all of a sudden Billy jumps out and says punish and embeds the axe right in this poor officer's chest and he falls down the stairs and i'm assuming it's because he killed he killed a priest this movie it just comes out fucking swinging with these goddamn builds up build ups to these kill sequences because every time somebody dies it is a well executed kind of drawn out moment and i mean i'm so impressed i don't really think there's a lame kill in this film and that's one thing i've got to say right now is like aces across the board for every single one of these fucking murders and this whole sequence is expertly executed because it takes its time it is a drawn out moment like the officer goes down kind of into this like cellar area. He goes down the staircase into the cellar. He goes through like all of the rooms. He's looking around. It's just so eerie and again, desolate and just unsettling. And, and he basically feels like he's searched the whole premises and he's coming back up the steps and boom, Billy appears, axe to the chest. You see the body go down the staircase. Like it's so creepy and just oh it gives me the heebie-jeebies that santa costume like everything about it is just really terrifying well it's the the i like the i, I do love the contrast of like the, the the deep red santa claus costume in this film with the white snowy bleak background yeah it's very impactful like this i mean both literally and phys, uh, physically because it's an axe to the chest but it, it's very like this visual sticks with you. You see for a moment as the axe is embedded in the officer's chest. He's like, Aah! and then he just goes backwards and you see his body laying at the bottom of the staircase. I still jump to this day when when you see that reveal of Billy in, in the doorway. Um, and then you get this really like kind of iconic shot of the axe like now in Billy's hand as he turns it with the blood dripping and he goes up and he fucking decapitates a goddamn snowman. Like, what the fuck did he do? Come on. Inside the orphanage, they are singing still, and the little boy, Andrew, little Andrew, sees Billy come to the door of the orphanage. And, of course, little Andrew sees Santa Claus, so he runs over there to let him in, thinking it's Santa Claus, right as Mother, Mother Superior turns around and sees, and she's like, Andrew, no, get away from him, don't, don't. It's too late. Billy's inside with Andrew. And then little Chrissy gets all excited, and I've never seen a more adorable cherub. Oh, my God, this little Chrissy. I was like, please don't kill Chrissy. She's got this, like, little 
crack in the middle of her teeth and she's like but it's Santa Claus like and they're all of the nuns are like beckoning the children away and the kids are obviously like enchanted with the visual of Santa because she even promised him so they think it's part of the shit even though they just saw Santa Claus get shot and killed out front I know they're all excited about this Santa Claus though they seem like they totally forgot about the one that just got murdered you're, you're right <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I would not be, if I was one of these children, I would not be too excited to see Santa Claus after just seeing him being gunned down um, in the front of the property. Anyway, so Billy approaches Mother Superior, and she immediately starts to say, there is no Santa Claus. There is no Santa Claus. There is no Santa Claus. No, I don't know. I can't, I can't do it either. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. She has such a distinctively like demanding voice with that accent that it's hard to do. But he raises the axe and he is about to bring it down on her. And she, God love, God love or God hate this bitch. She stands her ground, right? She doesn't try to wheel away. She stands there and is looking him right in the eye saying, there is no Santa Claus. And as he raises the axe and gets ready to bring it down, you see the moment where she closes her eyes like she's just like, okay, it's going to happen. And as he's getting ready to swing it, all of a sudden the gunshots shoot him. He drops the axe, falls to the ground. It's the captain and sister Margaret to the rescue. And there is this very, I think it's, a impactful scene where when Billy falls from being shot, he grabs the arm of mother superior's wheelchair to try to like brace himself and to hold himself up. And she immediately yanks it. Oh my God. She, I I have a note that she's a cunt to the very end. Uh, She is like you bitch. You are the one that is 99% responsible for this kid. I hate that. She did not get her come up at the end of this film. No, she did not. I, I really like that. That little gesture when she yanks her arm away just makes me want to leap into the fucking TV and punch this old bitch because she literally is the, the huge cause for what happened to him. She th- tortured this kid. She didn't get him help. She tortured him. And she'll take no uh, no accountability at all for what she did. Um, and then to contrast that, though, Sister Margaret being, you know, the one element of hope over the course of this film, she runs over to Billy as he's, you know, bleeding out and dying, and she, like, holds his face in her hands, and she looks down on him with this very, like, loving, sweet expression as only Gilmer McCormick can provide. And um, it, it really, again, very touching, though, because... Impactful. Because you, he has this final moment, at least, where there's somebody with him who's not inflicting pain on him you know it was not being cruel to him um and it really is sad again it's so sad like you feel things at the end of this movie yeah and he dies his last words are you're safe now santa claus is gone and he's dead he dies in mrs uh dies in sister margaret's arms and then we get a shot of little ricky the same pan up that we got of 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 big Billy in the toy store, we get this pan up of little Ricky and we see him from his feet to his pan up from his feet to his face. And when we get to his face, he looks at mother superior and says naughty. And the film ends. Oh my God. Like beginning to end how 
perfectly played out. <laughs> like, like that being the final note on this movie, the little brother making that comment. And we did acknowledge that because we did review Silent Night, Deadly Night 2, and there's this very awkward moment where they show the same shot of the pan up the legs. I mean, shocking. They, they show most of the same shots because it's 40 minutes worth of the same footage in, this, in the sequel. Um, and then they, like, awkwardly do this, like, cut in on the shot panning up to what is another child, like a different yeah, it's child. A different, if it, yeah, the sequel has a totally different child than the one at the end of the original. I don't know if anybody besides us have noticed that. I know you brought it up to me, Roger, and we did verify it. It's definitely a different child. Why? I don't know, I guess, because they used that child for the scenes of young Ricky in the sequel. And watching this film, you know, it just makes me realize I the, how much shit how much of a big pile of shit the sequel is. Like I really, I, I'm just going to, I'm not going to harp on this, we're, we, but I'm going to say, I wish this, this film deserved a much better sequel than it got. Yeah. I mean, that's silent night, deadly night. I, I think it is one of the standout slasher films of the eighties by far. I think when you look at this film, not from a necessarily like a slasher film perspective, but you look at it as a character study, uh, a study on trauma and grief. And uh, yeah, which is a very popular catchphrase to use now since the Halloween Halloween kills films came out. But this one I think truly explores that concept and that theme in a much more effective way than either of those Halloween or Halloween kills did. Uh, if you look at it from that perspective, you're, you're watching this and, and how effectively this film can go from making the protagonist, the antagonist in such a, sort of sharp unexpected like twist but you still sympathize with them to do that is is very skillful script writing and very script skillful filmmaking directing um so for me this film is a standout film of the 80s i think you know the film has a bad reputation because of the whole killer santa aspect and i think that was the wrong uh, thing to really focus on when they marketed this film. I think they did it obviously because they knew it was going to make money or they thought it was going to make money. It ended up shooting him in the foot. So, because that was what caused all the controversy, even though there were other killer Santa movies before this that got no sort of publicity. We, t we talked about to do all a good night, but then you had um, Christmas evil. You had the segment from uh, Tales from the Crypt all through the house and all through the house with the Killer Santa. Those never got the attention this one did. It's because this one decided to use the Killer Santa as the marketing ploy when technically, like I said, I think the film, film that makes the, the, the thing that makes this film stand out is the fact that it's the sympathetic portrayal of the, the villain and how it gets the audience to really care. I feel like this film, each time I watch it, it just gets more sad and sadder. It just gets sadder and sadder because you see so many opportunities throughout the film that Billy could have been saved, and he he just wasn't. That doesn't excuse what he did, but it just makes the film that much more depressing, I think. Yeah, yeah. I, I really think that this film is a, an example of what you can do with the genre, especially like the slasher genre. That doesn't have to be the same old, same old, treading over the same material. You you can approach it from a different angle. You can it doesn't have to be the same blueprint every fucking time. This movie is it's a slasher, but in so many ways it, it's not like most other movies within this genre. It doesn't fall to the same tropes. Like I said at the beginning of this review, it doesn't have a final girl. It doesn't have some 
maniacal kind of dark backstory. It goes for a sympathetic story. It makes you care about the character. It doesn't make you hate him. You feel totally different emotions when you watch this movie as compared to, like, I don't know, like a Halloween or anything. You know, like some a lot of these movies where they kind of just make these killers just like kind of big, unstoppable baddies that are just out to kill for the sake of killing. This is the story of a character who experienced so much hardship that he just inevitably broke. And and you're right. There's so many chances over the course of this film that they could have acted upon this and and tried to, you know, right some of these wrongs and nobody made the call to do so. And so this is what happens. Uh, it's, a, it's a very interesting character study. Um, I really want to acknowledge... I think one of the standout aspects of this film is, well, first, I, I said I would have liked to have seen an additional maybe sequence, like a kill sequence. That's not to say that I don't like the pacing of this film. I say that selfishly because I think this movie has just some of the best kill sequences of the era. The craftsmanship behind the, the cinematography and the storytelling are phenomenal, and I just would like to have seen more selfishly on my behalf. That being said... The film's pacing in general is standout to me. Um, I think they really perfectly handled the time lapse from his youth to his now, you know, being 18 years old. Um, Because one thing to really acknowledge is you see him when he's, what, like maybe 10? And then you have that freeze frame and then it cuts to him, you know, now at 18. You've got to keep in mind how many years are crammed between that that he has been suppressing and pushing this down and ignoring this trauma and going without proper treatment, going without having someone to properly speak to about this. I mean, there are years and years and years of this kid just struggling and suffering. And that time lapse, there's a lot of things we don't see. Um, And they really did a good job of crafting a tight story that gives you just enough of it. But like, when you think about what he has been through in his 18 years my god this poor kid it just really like it leaves like a lump in your throat i mean for a movie called silent night deadly night to leave me feeling this this kind of sadness and grief over this character like that really is expert storytelling it's phenomenal script writing and it's really fantastic cinematography direction everything across the board they crafted a great story um, I get why they went with the kind of publicity marketing tools that they did, that they chose to lean into uh, for the, the, the sake of shock factor. But you're right. That didn't do justice to the film itself. It definitely made it marketable in the sense of making sure that there were eyes on the film. But uh, it also got them kicked out of movie theaters eventually. It made them banned in certain areas and so forth. I mean, I think this movie should be acknowledged and I don't want to say celebrated, but recognized for trying to write a sensitive horror film, a human slasher, a movie that's more has more depth and nuance than than it does, you know, kill count. Because there could there was room for more death in this movie, but they chose to spend more time making it about the focal character. Yeah, and that's what I that's what I'm saying. That's why that's why I think it's a standout film. I think that the whole killer Santa aspect of it, while intriguing, you know, it really did ultimately hurt the film in terms of its box office success because the film when it 
opened, opened around the same time Nightmare on Elm Street did, the original in 84, and this film outpaced it at the box office quite significantly. Um, and they're saying the estimate was that I read was the estimate that if this film was not pulled from theaters, that it would have went on to probably gross at least 20 million, which at that time in 84 for a slasher flick would have been damn good. Um, but it got pulled after its first week and it's only now it's only been since, you know, the, the, probably the mid nineties that the film kind of regained a, a, a status of, as being something that is worthy to, to look at again and, and is worthy to watch kind of on a yearly basis. And like I said, to me, it's my second favorite Christmas horror film of all time and definitely is in my top 10 slasher flicks, if not my top 10, my top five, uh, I can watch this film like I said, over and over again. And every time I watch it, I get, I just get the same feeling of, of just like depression. And there's points in the film where I'm like yelling at the screen. I'm like, Oh my God, don't do that. Or why didn't you do? And I just find the whole Billy arc, the character arc of Billy to be so interesting and so endearing. And yes, he's a brutal, brutal killer. What he did was absolutely wrong, obviously, but God, it's such a likable character and you feel so sorry for him. But I mean, that's what there is to say about Silent Night, Deadly Night. Um, I really don't have much more to say about the film. We're going on. Look at it. We're going on two hours and 20 minutes. Deserving, though. Which is our 50th 50th episode. Yeah. Yeah. So 50th. uh, 50th. And, you know, so with that said, Silent Night, Deadly Night. This is your Christmas episode. Now, guys, next week, I think Roger is Roger's going out of town for Christmas, right? I am. I'm going to Lake Tahoe. So our, our 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 51st episode will probably drop the first week of January. So there's probably going to be about a week gap between episodes. However, keep your eyes open because we might give you a little treat anyways. So it, it, even though we won't be posting a, our, our 51st episode until the first week of January, there might be something a little extra that drops for you. Uh, next week just to keep you satisfied. But if not, you have a two hour and 20 minute episode to listen to about Silent Night, Deadly Night. So that'll keep you busy. Enjoy every minute of it. Enjoy every minute of it. And Roger, I'm going to tell you, we're coming back uh, in January with our 51st episode. And we always like to end the episode with letting our listeners know what our next uh, review is going to be. So I'm going to get to it real quick. I... It's a it's it's another Christmas film. I'm not letting the Christmas season escape that easily. No, we're too festive here. We're too, too fe- festive. Yeah. But it's a Christmas film that I think deserves to be reviewed the first week of January. And it is the s- film starring the very handsome Wes Bentley mm. called P2. Oh, I love P2. And yes, and it's actually a request from one of our biggest supporters Craig Brocken he's our, he's on he's on Patreon he is always very supportive of everything we do and he he requested it and I was like you know what Craig I'm Craig I'm not going to make you wait until next Christmas no no we take care of ours January is still a holiday season so we are very much covering P2 for our 51st episode yeah we take care of our fans and we love them so guys you have that to look forward to and then January oh god we got some great titles after P2 to review that we will review for you if you want to know what they are ahead of time you don't want to wait join our Patreon because I post the episodes that we are covering a month ahead of time yes we do and we're getting back to having a few guests we're going to get back into you know, the natural role of things now that we're through the whole 
the the busyness of the holidays. You know how that gets. Troy, you know how that gets. I do. I do. So, guys, thank you for your support. Thank you for listening. Again, give us a little holiday love and a little 50th birthday love by going to the Apple Podcast app and giving us a five-star rating. Or, like I said, if you want extra bonus content, go to patreon.com slash podcast. But until the big 5-1, we will chat with you later guys merry christmas merry christmas happy new yes merry christmas happy new year happy hanukkah thank you happy hanukkah thank you guys for supporting us for this 2021 it's been a great year for us here at the dark island of the podcast and we cannot wait to see what 2022 brings for us okay yes absolutely guys thank you so much for supporting us through the whole fucking year i mean through covid and through all the shenanigans and everything We've stuck to giving you, uh, you know, consistent material, and we're going to keep it up. It's only going to get better. I mean, 2022 is only going to get better. Ain't it the truth, Troy? We can hope. We can hope. <laughs> well, I meant the show. I, I'm, not, I'm not assuring that the year is going to be better. Oh, no, but for the podcast, yeah. The podcast, <laughs> it's gonna, we have great things coming, so we're not, we're, we're not concerned about that. But, yeah, guys, so with that, to all a good night, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, and we will see you at the Big 5-1. To all a good night. P2. P2. Good night. Good night. Good night.